The regular season may be coming to a close, but CFB Winning Edge continues to work through the postseason as we make updates to our 2021 FBS team profiles, including depth charts, injury reports, bowl game opt-outs, NFL draft declarations, and more. Become a Tier 2 Patreon supporter to gain access to our 130 team pages, which include player and coach ratings, team performance, bowl game projections, and more. Visit patreon.com slash cfbwinningedge to learn more and to sign up. Welcome back, everybody, at CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. Joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. And Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E, on the Twitter. And, you know, we've got a couple things to talk about in this episode, I would say. Uh, we got Conference Championship Week, which actually might take a backseat to the unbelievable amount of dominoes that have already fallen in the uh, 2022 head coaching search. Uh, You know, just uh, hours after some of these games, we got big time coaches moving. So Nick, I don't even know where we want to start, man. Do we want to start with coaches? Do we want to start with last week? Where do we want to begin all of the the news that we have for uh, this, this episode? Well, I mean, I I think that coaches are, are certainly worth, discussing. We'll have plenty of time to uh, dive into more of the details and uh, sort of how, you know, different schemes and coaching history and all that will impact 2022. But to see at least a couple of the, you know, most high profile moves that we've seen are are pretty rare in the sports history, like Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma, a, you know, premium job uh, team where he had won what the, the, conference championship in each of his first four seasons, five seasons. Uh, and then, uh, you know, came up short last week, but that opened the door apparently, you know, if, if Oklahoma hadn't lost that game, would he, would Lincoln Riley still be the head coach there? Maybe. Uh, but they're out of the you know playoff hunt out of the big 12 title game. And uh, he, he is off to USC, which was uh, really, you know, surprised a lot of people. Uh, USC was really under the radar. LSU had been, of course, the uh, big rumor going into the weekend, but then LSU pulled off its own. Uh, just and there was you know. even a rumor that LSU was ready to announce Lincoln Riley as their head coach, like they had an agreement, and then he pulled out. Who knows if that's true? All the stuff we've heard this week, but there was even rumors to that nature. So absolutely, absolutely. But then Brian Kelly, uh, you know, his team isn't actually, you know, eliminated from playoff contention, uh, at least theoretically. But um, he leaves Notre Dame, a job where, you know, things have been rolling pretty much there recently. I know they've not gotten over the national championship hunt. And there is certainly uh, a lot of the discussion the last week or so was, you know, could or if Notre Dame could win a national championship, Kelly would still be there. Uh, If they could recruit at an elite, elite level, he would still be there. Um, But at LSU, you know, those are both 
without a doubt, you can win a national championship. You can recruit a number one class if everything comes together. So uh, he's off and, you know, there's a, a long list of other moves. Dominoes have fallen, but two, you know, uh, two of the uh, blue blood premium jobs, whatever you want to call them, uh, have officially been filled and two more have opened up. And that, you know, we haven't even talked about Billy Napier at Florida. That's another one. Right. And, and, uh, Washington hired a new head coach, Kalen DeBoer, going from Fresno State. Uh, you know, Sonny Dykes, it had been long reported, rumored that he was leaving SMU for TCU. I mean, that news is like two weeks old. That's old news. We Absolutely. talked about that last week. And he <laughs> hasn't fire. even been... Has he had his press conference there or anything yet? Sunday he did. Uh, it, it was either Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning. This this whole week's okay. been a blur for me. Yes, uh, I'm sure for a lot of folks. But uh, you know, yeah, that that's official now. But even before it was official, SMU announced that it had hired a new head coach, Rhett Lashley, uh, Miami offensive coordinator, formerly at Auburn and and you know SMU other places as well. Uh, David Cutcliffe is out at Duke. Skip Holt is at Louisiana Tech. They've already hired a new coach, Sonny Cumbie, Rod Carey at Temple. We've got new coaches at New Mexico State, Jerry Kill. Uh, and it sounds like Akron's got their guy, Joe Moorhead, who uh, would be leaving after Oregon uh, plays its you know Pac-12 championship game this week. And that seems to be you know a better hire than Akron maybe ever could have hoped for. But he has a, a history there and you know apparently wants – uh, an opportunity to, to become a head coach there. So a lot of moving parts in the coaching world, and we're not even close to finish yet. Uh, Xavier, I mean, your thoughts on the uh, coaching carousel that has already happened, and we're not even two conference championships yet. So uh, it's been a little crazy. Keep the, keep, keep the crazy coming. I, I want more of it. I need all of it as long as it doesn't affect the University of Georgia. Keep it coming. I love it. This is this is fun for me. Uh, you know, the amount of coaches so far who have been moved and we've seen, you know, everybody under the sun be, be essentially attached to all of the biggest schools available now. I mean, it's still not done yet. Obviously, you know, now Bob Stoops has taken over at, as the interim uh, for Oklahoma and where he's only supposed to, you know, reside for just the bowl game. According to him, he's already hit the recruiting trail. So there's that, uh, you know, so Bob Stoops looks like he's at the very least getting, you know, uh, you know, licking his chops a little bit to get out there and, and do something. Obviously, you've got Pry, the defensive coordinator at Penn State, announced as a new coach for Virginia Tech, too. So he, they, they, we've got we've got that situation as well. So, I mean, and, you know, um, you know, Nick alluded to it, I think, like in the last episode, you've got over. Well, I think I saw a tweet. It was like 25 percent of the available kids are out on, in the portal right now. Like there's so many kids that are like now out in the portal. Um, then you've got the rumors that, you know, and then and I'm just going to speak on a couple of rumors right now. You've got rumors right now that, that everything's not a-okay at Tennessee. And that's why kids are deciding to enter the portal right now. You know, Jeff Collins just had a poor year. You've got guys like Jameer Gibbs in the portal. Now you've actually got both of their running backs now in the portal. So who knows if that completely goes south, if their AD decides to stick with Collins throughout the offseason, if he cannot bring in, you know, the class that, that, that you know, a pretty good class that they were supposed to have been bringing in right now. You've got Spencer Rattler looking like he may end up at Arizona State. And that was a rumor that's come out today as well. So, I mean, it's bonkers. And like I said, I love it because for me, this is typically the opposite. Typically, my teams are the ones looking for new coaches, trying to find <laughs> new people. 
And so that we've got all this stability going on. Like the only person at Georgia right now that's even gotten any kind of buzz of leaving is Will Muschamp, as and he's an analyst for us. So that kind of stability for me, I'm just Dan Lanning. No, Don't be not, surprised if he's gone. Not Will Muschamp. Oh no, I think he'll guys exactly. Guys be yeah, able. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Outside of maybe from the recruiting trail, exactly. So to have that kind of stability and just watch as the pendulums fall everywhere or as the dominoes fall everywhere else is a really good time. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on let's talk about the the transfers nick because uh like um uh like xavier said and i don't know about you guys but i can't get the i just i can't get the dr pepper transfer portal commercial out of my head when i talk about the transfer portal where the kid jumps into an actual mm -hmm. portal right so uh i i can't get that out, out of my head but so many of these kids i mean uh gabriel rattler hayner hatcher Cordero, uh, Jordan Yates, Zach Gibson, Gunnar Holmberg, Jack Miller, all into the portal, quarterback and running back, Tyon Evans, Zach Evans, Jameer Gibbs, Penny Boone, uh, Demontre Trainum, Day Day Hunter, um, a million wide receivers, Hazel Hazelwood being maybe the biggest name uh, on this list, but um, there's a lot of defensive players too, Nick. I mean, just where do you start with this and uh is is the portal a good or bad thing for college football uh my thoughts on on the transfer portal simultaneously it's both the best thing and the very worst thing <laughs> because you know we pay attention to the transfer portal even before it was you know the the term was officially transfer portal one of the the things that we set out to do in our FBS team profiles was to keep track of transfers. Not a whole lot of people really were uh, doing that. And that, that was, you know, part of our early um, process was going through updating rosters, not just looking at recruiting classes, but transfers were more and more common. And then they've just exploded in the last two years, really. And, and now, you know, transfer portal is, uh, a well-known term. It's officially a thing, a database where, you know, guys go in, can get contacted, of course, by uh, other schools. And, and because now there's a one-time free transfer, you know, we're not just dealing with uh, graduate transfers. We're not just dealing with guys who are going to go and sit out a year. Um, and it's, it, you know, the term gets thrown around and it, it's played out probably and, and a little silly, but, you know, the free agency in college football, that really is, you know, what, what's going on, especially when you see, I mean, you named uh, more than a half dozen starting quarterbacks, FBS starting right. quarterbacks. We might get, you know, to double digits at least. And so you're, you're taking into account guys who are out of eligibility, graduating, uh, guys who leave uh, for the NFL draft early. I mean, I don't, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I'm thinking, you know, on a on a normal year, a team averages 25, 30% turnover on its roster, just on, you know, a few transfers and uh, guys right. out of eligibility go to the NFL. Exactly. Um, that was, you know, before the last two years, that was kind of the, the common number. I mean, that's gotta be creeping to uh you know a third maybe even close to 40 percent and we might see i mean geez i don't know 40 percent of of fbs starting quarterbacks change you know being an, a, a first time starter in their new place uh next year but i mean we're talking some big big names dylan gabriel uh really exciting player 
didn't, you know, I was concerned that the the move to Gus Malzahn's offense would kind of limit his ability or maybe wouldn't put him in the the best position to succeed. And and he uh, just came out with a huge start to the year before he got injured. Spencer Rattler, you know, yeah, he lost his job, but he's still somebody with an NFL future for, you know, former five-star guy uh, you would expect will be able to go in, be a starter somewhere else. Jay Kaner apparently already has, at least according to, to one report late last night, already has his, you know, new slash old destination going back to Washington where he started his uh, career and then well, his coach following his there. head coach. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Lane Hatcher has had a, a solid career at Arkansas state, even though a couple of different head coaches haven't, you know, uh, seen, I guess what, what I've seen, or I think most of us have seen that he's been the best quarterback on the roster the last couple of years, but it seems like he's in a constant fight for his job. Well, you know, maybe he'll move to a little bit more stable situation. Chevin Cordero has had some really exciting moments at Hawaii, he's missed some time this year with injury, but uh, uh, you know, really turned into a super productive runner uh, in addition to doing some good things as a passer as well. Zach Gibson gave some people some excitement during Maction, had some good games at Akron. Gunnar Holmberg has been a starter uh, now at Duke. And, and then you've got some of the typical, you know, guys that we see, a former four-star quarterback like Jack Miller is at Ohio State, kind of buried on the depth chart. They're continuing to recruit uh, you know, higher and higher rated guys, and he's looking for another opportunity. And he's, of course, had a, uh, an off-the-field issue that he's been dealing with as well. But, uh, you know, that that guy going from a uh, one of those premium schools, one of those, you know, top 10 programs, and just hasn't been able to get on the field looking for a new opportunity, and he might – you know, find the right fit and become a, a Jay Kaner type guy where he goes to maybe a Mountain West or, or you know, uh, and I think he's from Arizona. So that's that's uh, potentially uh, a landing spot or, or, you know, somewhere in the American or whatever, uh, a G5 conference, most likely. Maybe he gets a starting job and, and becomes a star uh, eventually or, or, you know, just him as an example. I'm sure we'll see plenty of other guys that fit that mold as well, former four-star guys that just, you know, haven't had their shot yet looking for a new opportunity. But it, it starts with quarterback. I mean, you mentioned there are, of course, a ton of other guys. Jameer Gibbs might be my favorite player in college football, I and mean, he's very, very close to the top of that list. I'm excited to see what he can do. I know the early rumors were Tennessee. I saw something today that maybe Alabama uh, could be in the mix, and, and uh, you know, that would be a ton of fun. They could use some depth at uh, running back, and I think he, he's, uh, you know, one of the four or five best running backs in college football. So that would be uh, a great fit for him if if he were to get there. Tyrese Chambers, you know, kind of an under the radar type guy, had a huge year at FIU in an offense that struggled, a team that won one game, zero wins against FBS opponents. He goes over a thousand yards, one of the most explosive receivers in the country. You know, well over twenty yards per catch. Uh, He's getting offers from, you know, Western Kentucky. First of all, we don't necessarily know if if that offense is going to look exactly the same. But, boy, if he was there this year, he'd be a, a fun addition there. But I'm seeing, you know, Power 5 offers and things like that. His teammate, Miles Frazier, a name that, I'll be honest, I didn't even uh, know. I had him in our team profiles, of course, and he was he was there as a starter. But, you know, don't, didn't know anything about him. He's still 
rated in the 70s because we haven't fully updated our offensive line ratings yet. But he apparently is the most popular guy in the transfer portal. I mean, he's getting power five after power five offer. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the uh, sites and, and Twitter uh, handles out there who follow the transfer portal will retweet when guys are getting big time offers. And he's got two dozen probably power five offers at this point. So uh, it, it's really, really going to be interesting to see when the, you know, the musical chairs, when the music stops, where everybody uh, ends up, because already we're seeing some big names. And if previous years are any indication, you know, this is only the beginning. So uh, I, I myself will try to cut down a little on speculation as much as I can. I know that's, that's uh, <laughs> the fun of it for a lot of folks. Uh, but I, I kind of just want to, you know, get these guys figured out where they're going and, and then I can update, you know, the back end of, of our stuff uh, and then just start to see, you know, how that impacts the numbers. But it's, it, it's a lot going on again. It's probably just the start, uh, but I, you know, pretty interesting to me and 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 uh it'll be fun to see where some of these big time players end up it'll be fun to see guys who maybe aren't uh or you know were big names in recruiting but haven't quite lived up to it yet where they end up in, in new opportunities all of it there's there's a ton of different angles to look at it but uh there's there's still so much you know to get done before we're done talking about transfers uh, Xavier, your thoughts on transfers and are you with me? Can do you only think of the portal from the Dr. Pepper commercial every time you hear transfer portal? Not every time, but uh, you know, a good amount. I think that, that, it was, it was <laughs> very, done. No. oh, yeah, <laughs> I like it. I like it. I think it was funny. very tastefully done. Um, but no, I, I, I Unlike Nick, I'm all about the speculation. I'm all here for the speculation. Uh, I will be on all Twitters following all, you know, following every trail possible. I think the funniest thing for me about this year, as far as the transfer portal was concerned, especially when we look at the quarterback position, is how few quarterbacks actually look NFL ready. So a lot of those jobs that may be coming into the year that we thought were going to be like shoe-ins openings for next year um, or not, you know, you look at like, you know, Oklahoma with Spencer Rattler. We thought maybe it was a shoe-in. We talked about Jaden Daniels possibly being a guy who left this year after maybe an impressive year at Arizona State. Uh, you know, we looked at Keaton Slovis at USC possibly being a guy that left, you know, after this season as well. And so few jobs. De'Ari King was another one that we thought maybe was a guy who could go after this year. And so many few jobs are genuinely – you know, open due to a guy leaving for the draft that I think is going to be even more fun because you're going to see a lot of these guys go to schools that I, I think maybe aren't there or weren't or would not be their number one options if those guys who we thought were NFL draft ready coming into the year would have had good years and then just left, right? I think a guy, especially like a guy like Dylan Gabriel, I think his options would have been more open if you look around college football and you look at the fact that maybe Spencer Rattler would have left after a good season or Keaton Slovis would have left after a good season. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Nick, he might end up at a school like Tennessee, uh, you know, possibly as a speculation I've heard, he might try to go uh, up there with obviously with his old coach and Josh Heupel, but you know, and so those are kind of the things that I, I look at, you know, where are some position groups in, in particular that are a little bit weaker coming into this NFL draft this year that are going to lead to a lot of kids staying and trying to, you know, boost their revenue going into next year that otherwise in a typical year 
where the the you know the highly touted guys just were chalk like we we've seen in the past would have been wide open positions or at the very least uh, competitions coming into the 2022 season. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of moving and shaking before uh, we're, we're going to get lots of news before we even get the bowls too. So, yeah. uh, but let's uh, let's talk about what happened this week too, Nick. Because uh, I mean, geez, there there was a lot happening. So uh, let's just talk about week thirteen and uh, reflect back on Michigan finally beating Ohio state being obviously uh, the, the biggest game there. Plus we saw the very first overtime iron bowl in iron bowl history, which kind of blew my mind. I can't believe that that was uh, you know uh, the very first overtime game in that series. So uh, how did week 13 look for us? And um, what did you think of these games, Nick? Well, I, I'm not here to talk about the past, you know. The, the, Mark the, McGuire joins us, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, live from yeah, Capitol Hill. Yeah, yeah. So. I, I get, I get. Uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody else gets tired of me saying the same old thing every week about how the numbers looked last week. They were not good again, but uh, the the games on the field were, of course, you know, a ton of fun, and and I. We, of course, talked about the Ohio State-Michigan game going into last week. I was not ready to, I guess, give Michigan a, a full shot. Our numbers had Ohio State covering uh, eight points in all three uh, models. That, of course, you know, has, has proven to be a pretty bad indicator for us, pretty good indicator on the other side so far this year. And Michigan showed up and just uh, really controlled that game from the opening kick, it was very, very impressive. Uh, I thought Ohio State was the second best team in college football and maybe the biggest challenge uh, or the biggest threat to Georgia just because of uh, how explosive and, and efficient and productive their offense has been all year. And, you know, they they aren't going to give that opportunity because Michigan uh, was able to do enough, controlled the line of scrimmage. You know, that Ohio State offensive line, proved to be a real weakness and Michigan just got after him. I mean, Aiden Hutchinson went from uh, an all American type player to now maybe a Heisman uh, contender and, you know, becoming a, a star on a big, big stage. Somebody, a lot of you know fans already knew and NFL draft people, of course, already knew, but uh, to, for a defensive player to become a household name is, is somewhat rare. And, and, uh, and, you know, Hutchinson had one of those type games and, and on one of those stages uh, where he perhaps moved into that, that conversation. The Iron Bowl, you know, ton of fun. That was one. Of the, you know, fortunately, we were on the right side on with Auburn. But going back to our conversation, I didn't give Auburn a chance to win. And it looked like, you know, until uh, that final drive, you know, final Alabama offensive drive at the end of uh, regulation, Auburn had that game pretty much in hand. You know, they weren't able to quite score enough. And, you know, we didn't even talk uh, and they haven't even seen but the very tip of the iceberg as far as coordinator coaching carousel. But Mike Bobo is already out at Auburn. Uh, that offense, you know, just hasn't – didn't quite uh, get it together this year. And, and uh, Alabama was able to keep it in check enough to be able to come back and, and win that game in overtime really uh exciting game one of the most uh you know they they've of course had 
so many classics uh, in that rivalry, even just in, in recent years. But this was certainly one that the finish uh, was up there as, as far as one of our more exciting games this season, I'd say. But, uh, you know, Baylor was tested but was able to, to get into the Big 12 championship game. Uh, LSU knocked off Texas A&M, get itself bowl eligible. Pretty exciting game. We saw some pretty dominant performances as well. Uh, Georgia, of course, again. Um, you know, Clemson starting to maybe round back into form. And, and uh, then some – I mean, Jesus feels like it's been two weeks ago. But how about that NC State comeback win over North Carolina? I mean, that – it seems so long ago uh, that it was last Friday, but for them to be down, uh, what, 10 points with uh, less than two minutes to play or whatever it was, I mean, there there were definitely a lot of uh, great games, as there always have been, and, and we certainly saw uh, some of the, the big-time matchups, and it's always great to see it, you know, when there's a, a major rivalry involved as well. Javier, your thoughts on uh, Rivalry Week and what we saw turn out from these games here. Next year, you guys going to believe me when I say that there's voodoo down there? Or yeah, two years yeah, from absolutely. now? Absolutely. Look, yeah. I, I said, uh, you know, I text you in the middle of the game. Yeah. I said, how dare I doubt these ghosts? I mean, yeah. you know, and Nick had kind of, he was like, what the hell are you talking about? I was like, Javier talked about the ghosts, you know, uh, and uh, I didn't believe him. And clearly, there was something to that. You know, I don't know if it's voodoo or whatever, but it's whatever it is, it's working. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I probably learned my lesson. shot. Yeah, did you? I maybe I'll take I mean, that. We'll I, I'll take that from Nick. I'll take that. You know, I, I'll <laughs> take the, the 50 50. We just need we just need another game like that in two years for him to finally go to like 70 30. So, uh, but no, I, I think that this weekend was great. Um, Obviously, Michigan beating Ohio State for me was, was was fun because going into that game, I was terrified. I'll be perfectly honest. I thought Ohio State's offense was just impenetrable force. Uh, and, and we talked about it a little bit, you know, and I talked about the fact that, you know, Ohio State's offense, and in, in particular, C.J. Stroud, has not really played a road game. And, and between him and Bryce Young, they have looked, you know, and I think those would be your front-runner Heisman candidates going into last week. As far as the quarterback position is concerned, both of them have looked pretty abysmal on the road this year. Um, and that is just something that I don't think we've seen from quarterbacks of that level. I don't know if I could point to a year where we've seen that from two guys that we would consider maybe, you know, in the top five uh, for the Heisman race this year, where they've had such high highs on the on, at home, right? You know, they, they bludgeon uh, Michigan State, who did win this week, so the curse does not exist. Uh, you know, uh, you know, beat Michigan, beats Michigan State, and, and for Bryce Young, you know, beats a, an Arkansas team in the week prior, and then such abysmal performances the following week on the road in hostile environments, uh, where you expect, you know, at this point in the year, you know, you kind of understand the teams that you're talking about, and, and I, and once again, college football shows us that this year is unlike any year where we have no idea what we're talking about in some respects. Um, you know, going into these going into these weeks, right? You know, obviously Nick alluded to the NC State North Carolina game, which I think was the best game of the week, honestly, in the way that it was and the way that it finished. I feel like it got slept on, obviously, because it wasn't a Saturday game. Uh, Bedlam being for me as a former special teams guru is what I used to call myself in high school and college was annoyingly frustrating Two, not one, but two muffed putts ending scores. Uh, you know, 
what, what a way for Oklahoma to, to give it back to uh, Oklahoma State and essentially hand the game off to them in that way. And then I think, you know, you, you brought up A&M LSU. I think that game is becoming one of the more fun rivalries in sports at the end of the year. I don't know if I don't know if it was two or three years ago was this was a six overtime thriller or the four or five overtime thriller that they had a couple of years ago. You know, uh, A&M gave LSU a run for their money the year that LSU wins the national championship. That game is becoming and, and I don't know if anybody saw what Zach Calzada said on Instagram after that game was over. But apparently the, the A&M fan base wasn't all too happy in his DMs. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- that that rivalry is becoming more of the throw out the numbers, throw out the, you know, the you know all the narratives a team whoever comes in that game may win or lose it doesn't matter who it is at this point because i very well thought AM would go right in there with a with a lame duck coach and in orgeron season on a loss and it was quite the contrary and then lastly i'll speak on obviously i think was everybody's you know pity game to watch at the 12 o'clock hour which was florida florida state and in a game which I thought neither team looked like they wanted to win. I mean, Emory Jones was literally throwing picks for fun. And Florida State's offensive line was as abysmal as it has been all year. And it literally looked like nobody wanted to go to a bowl game until like the fourth quarter where they were like, okay, we might not want to go to a bowl game, but we want to win because we have to deal with these guys for the entire offseason. So let's go ahead and kick it up. Uh, so that was also just a game I just watched and laughed pretty much the entire game, to be honest. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was uh, a fun week, that is to say the very least. But uh, look, we're not here to talk about the past, as Nick said, right? We're here to talk about the future. And let's move on to Well, 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 uh, hold on. Uh, maybe, not maybe, so fast, maybe we'll, my friend. Uh, well, so so obviously, you know, I've done a lot of whining and, and the numbers have not been good on a week-to-week <laughs> basis. Uh, but I do want to take a, a quick moment to, to celebrate one thing and, and, uh, uh, you know, all those three hour podcasts we did in the summer, um, were definitely a, a big part of this, but, you know, one thing we did was go through and compare our preseason projection to the posted, uh, win total from DraftKings at the time that we recorded, uh, we logged all of those. And, uh, you know, I I mentioned a couple of uh, weeks ago that the numbers were looking really, really good coming in and and with all but one uh, still to be decided. Navy has three wins. We are on Navy under three and a half and they put Army in in a couple of weeks. Uh, We had the the same exact projection uh, on four teams, Georgia State, Oregon, Stanford, and Wisconsin. So we were at like, you know, if it was six and a half, we were right on 6.50 um, for those. So we threw it out. Uh, Rutgers also, for whatever reason, didn't have one posted. Uh, so we threw that out. But of the, the 124 that we can count as, uh, you know, having been decided, we were 78, 41, and 5. So 65.5% on our win total projections. And so a lot of those... We've always been a win total show. Always, always, you know. (laughs) Uh, But the, uh, you know, uh, there were were certainly some where we were percentage points, like maybe ours was uh, 0.04 wins above or whatever. So that goes as an under. So there's some potentially some luck that's involved in that number. I think over 124, you know, I still feel pretty good about it. But I, I did want to see, and we talked about some of these, 
specifically, but on the ones where our projection was 1.00, like a win or more different, whether it was higher or lower. Uh, those are the ones where we really should have an edge, right? Those numbers were even better. So there were 27 of those. We went 18, 8, and 1 for a winning percentage of 69.2%. So, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot of uh, uh, just, got, you know, feeling bad about the, the weekly projections and all that, but uh, we have done some good things this year. And, and so I did want to celebrate our win totals uh, that we spent a lot of time talking about this summer. And of course, a lot of off-season work goes into that as well. So I uh, didn't want to lose that, but we do finally have something to celebrate. All right. I mean, the win totals were huge. That was a huge part of this show for sure. I mean, you know, we joke we're a win total show, but I mean, we talked a lot about totals uh, at the beginning of the year. So like Nick said, lots of long podcasts about that. So be sure when you're, uh, you know, diving back in for college football in the 2022 season to check us out for win totals. Uh, let's just go into it here, Nick. And what conference championship game line has you the most confused for this weekend? So there's not very many, obviously. Um, and so there's not a whole lot to choose from. I can't say that one line uh, just sort of jumps out as a, you know, uh, like just, wow, that looks, that looks really strange. But one that I'm wondering if our numbers are, you know, I, I've just got not the best feeling necessarily. This is actually our only wrong team favored of the week. Uh, but we have UTSA favored over, Western Kentucky. And our numbers have been pretty good on UTSA this year. Um, and so, you know, we had UTSA as a favorite against Western Kentucky earlier this year. They won that game. Uh, but our numbers have been, you know, hit or miss on WKU in that the, the recent winning streak, and they've won what, six games in a row or something? Uh, and that offense has been so incredible to watch. The numbers are just eye-popping. But, you know, Bailey Zappi at quarterback, the transfer from Houston Baptist, Jareth Stearns, one of the best receivers in college football this year, transferred along with him, along with their offensive coordinator, Zach Kitley, who is going to be, uh, I would have to assume, now, you know, number one on Texas Tech's list now that Sonny Cumbie's left for uh, – Louisiana Tech. And then, you know, if that doesn't work out, I'm sure he's going to be highly sought after anyway. But Western Kentucky is, has been a good team all year. They lost four games uh, uh, in the, you know, early, you know, first half of the season. They won against an FCS opponent, then lost to Army, lost to Indiana, lost to Michigan State. All of those games were respectable. Um, and then since then, they haven't lost. They've just seemingly gotten better and better each week and they are a hot team right now our numbers haven't quite i guess caught up to how good western kentucky has been uh, um but and also you know we've been high on utsa all year so i guess it's not a real surprise uh but also you know when this was posted originally by circa i mentioned that uh you know most weeks it made me feel you know, pretty good that UTSA was a favorite when they opened it, but it immediately flipped. I mean, right as soon as they started taking bets and, and you know, other uh, odds makers were, were posting their lines, other, other books, uh, Western Kentucky is now a one and a half point favorite. So we have 
uh, UTSA winning that game outright. We only have them winning by you know two or so. So it's it's still in that coin flip uh, category. I, I don't have a, a strong lean one way or the other necessarily, though it is you know like I said one of those where wrong teams favored in our projections. And traditionally, that's been uh, a pretty good sign this year as everything, not as much. But uh, that's the only one that kind of got me, you know, thinking and, and really just sort of our projections see it different than I guess what the market does, at least. Xavier, are there any conference championship games that uh, you look at the Lions and go, what is happening here? Nick, I just I don't know if you know. I know you said it was a one and a half point favorite. It's now a three point favorite for Western Ooh, Kentucky. I, I didn't see that. No, I had. Yeah, I just so. You know. Yeah, we we listed. Uh, wow, yeah, three. So the the only thing that I I've seen, but it it's what could kind of go against this type of line. And I'm not an expert on line movement. I you know. There's somebody out there probably knows something that that I don't know, but ninety one percent of money is on WKU. I mean, they've they've been playing great. They've they've absolutely been playing great. UTSA. This was the last game they lost out last week. Yes, yes, and it was it, it was uh, pretty close, wasn't it? Yeah, fifty two forty six or whatever. Yeah, it was a close game. But so Frank Harris, UTSA's quarterback, uh, left the last game with an injury. Everything that I've Red no, sense. he got benched. He got wasn't benched. An injury. Oh. He got benched. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that game, yeah, because that. I mean, I've been, you know, I have Frank Harris in my lineup. Uh, uh of course. <laughs> or actually, no, I didn't. I I pulled him for. Uh, I left Gabbard in. I think. I don't know. I ended up winning by like six points at the very. I didn't even know I won until Monday. To be honest, I was down yes. so bad, so late. I was like all right, whatever, at least I doubled up my money. And then I came back Monday. I'm like, just how bad did I lose? And I won by six points. So, but yeah, Frank Harris got benched in that game because he looked okay. so terrible. They put Josh Atkins in. Out. Gotcha. Yeah. They tried all three quarterbacks so, in that game. They did, yeah. <laughs> so I, I saw the box score. I didn't see much of it live, honestly. But uh, I noticed that other quarterbacks had played, and I didn't see anything about an injury, but I saw something later uh, earlier this week on Monday that said – uh, you know, Harris is is probable, you know, expected to play. So I, I just, I guess, assumed it was an injury. Um, but OK, so that, you know, maybe uncertainty of the quarterback position, uh, whether it whatever it is, just not playing well. Uh, if he's not fully 100 percent and we just didn't know whatever, that would be my first guess. That's always the most impactful thing. But if it's 91 percent of the money and again, I'm not an expert on that sort of thing, you know, especially if it is, quote unquote, smart money. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I don't feel great <laughs> that it's moved so far because uh, I think Circa had it listed originally um, as UTSA is a one-point favorite. And so if it's moved four points off of that, that's not necessarily good for us if we're on UTSA. But on the other hand, there are some pretty smart people who are making those uh, initial, you know, posting those initial odds. And if they were sort of like-minded with us, you know, I, I kind of have to say, okay, well, we at least started at the same place. So I don't know. We'll see. But obviously a, a, a movement that big, uh, uh, again, I don't, I don't feel great being on the other side of it. Right. Uh, so is there, Xavier, are there any conference championship games where you look at and you go, what are they thinking here? 
Oh yeah, it's Oregon Utah. I don't I I don't see it. Um, you know, I see You got Oregon favorite again? Yeah, I do. And this is why. Let me let me let me, let me <laughs> They just lost this out. game. <laughs> let me let me have You know how hard it is to beat a team twice. Okay? This is why I understand the Western Kentucky hype when it comes to the UTSA game. It is almost impossible to beat a team twice in the way in which you did it. There's no way Utah is going to blow them out by 30 points this time. It's just they're not at home. They're not going to have punt, they're not going to have punt return touchdowns right before the half. Like Utah, Oregon's not going to come into this game taking this Utah team lightly. This is very indicative of, and I hate to bring it back to this team because it makes me sound like a homer, but this is a very indicative of when Georgia went to Auburn, I think it was three years ago, and got the doors beat off of them. They were, I think, the number two three team at the uh, at the time. They got the doors beat off of them in Auburn. They had a rematch in the SEC championship game. That game went a lot differently. A lot differently. Obviously, Georgia wins, goes on to the playoff, beats Oklahoma. We know how that ends. I see the same thing happening in this game. Oregon has really nothing to play for outside of this Pac-12 championship game. They're, you know, they're obviously their playoff hopes are, are, are pretty much contingent on everybody losing this week. Like everybody, like there, there has to be complete chaos in front of them for them to end up in the playoff. But they've got this Utah team here who embarrassed them. Right, ended their playoff hopes for the most part, and on top of that, really left no doubt in that game. Utah blows them out. The game was pretty much over by halftime. I turned it off and went to bed. I know uh, for for the majority of the country, they did the same thing. And it's one thing, you know. I think Oregon did this last year, if I'm not mistaken. Oregon is able. Oregon loses midway through the year. They obviously play in the Pac-12 championship game. Win. I see the same thing happening this week. I think Oregon wins this game. I think they play. 10 times better than what they were able to do against Utah. And Utah is a better home team. Maybe they had some, you know, home field advantage, as we've seen this year, has been massive and has shown huge differences in play. This is a neutral side game. This is not in Utah with that weather, with that crowd behind them. Let's see how they perform again. And like I said, it is almost, you know, it is so hard to beat a team twice. And it's almost it's even harder to beat a team twice the way you in which you did it, right? It's a, it's hard to embarrass a team twice, uh, unless you're the Patriots and the Jets. All right, I mean, look, that um, I I don't know if I'm buying it, Xavier. I know it's hard to beat a team twice, uh, but the spread is not thirty, right? So uh, I, I think uh, I I've got I'm I'm gonna have Utah. I'll just say, but we'll get to that game in a little bit. How about, uh, Nick, what are the biggest advantages you see uh, in a conference championship game this week? I mean, we also have the remake game of USC and Cal. So, you know, well, I'm I'm saying the 10 conference championship games, but we have an extra game. So, but uh, what are the biggest edges you've seen in any game this week? There are very many. Um, only one is a, a difference of five points or more, and that's, you know, 5.21 uh, is the difference. We've got Kent State favored by eight. 0.21 over Northern Illinois, and that includes assuming Rocky Lombardi is going to start at quarterback for Northern Illinois. Uh, there are two questionable quarterbacks, uh, Baylor, uh, Jerry, you know, Jerry Bohannon as well. Um, went ahead because both of those were underdogs and, and both of our projections were on the other side. Uh, went ahead and gave them full strength at the quarterback position just to sort of see how that would uh, impact it, if it would you know, flip it one way or the other. And at full 
strength Northern Illinois we have is more than a touchdown underdog against Kent State. So uh, games with a five-point edge or more, we're over 50% this year, much, much better than the rest of ours. Um, so, you know, this could be a, a little bit of an indicator there. Um, but Kent State, you know, edge at the quarterback position with Dustin Crum, really explosive on offense. The issue is, you know, that Kent State defense is, is not – great. Uh, and Northern Illinois is maybe one of the luckier teams in college football. I mean, they, we won't get into all the, uh, scenarios, but they've, they've won a lot of games and they look good. And they were a team that, um, we went over on the win total and, and are, you know, pleased with that. They run the football really, really well. They've got some explosive ability in the passing game, most recently with Trayvon Rudolph. Um, but you know, they, they can test Kent State, but I, I just think, uh, you know, I believe that, that Kent State does have a, uh, an advantage of this game, probably should win, and feel, feel okay about it being closer to a touchdown than a field goal. All right. Well, let's dive in to some of these conference championship games here, Nick. I mean, the, the very first one, we'll go with the Pac-12. We've already heard Xavier's piece on why he thinks uh, Oregon can beat Utah. What do you think of uh, this rematch that we're going to have in Vegas? So I agree with a, with a lot of what Xavier says. Um, it is difficult to beat a team twice, for sure. I mean, you know, you some of it's psychological because players will say like, hey, yeah, we got it in the bag. We, we blew them out last time. We know what we're doing. We can beat them easy. You know, no problem. So – and we don't, of course, get into this sort of uh, thinking when it comes to what the projections and, and the numbers only say, but you can kind of game out scenarios where Utah's players say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have to practice hard today because we beat Oregon uh, last time and, you know, blew them out and, and all that. Where on the other hand, it's a revenge game for Oregon. They're, you know, going at it as hard as they can each week in practice or each day in practice. You know, they learned from the film study what, what happened in that game. Uh, you know, the coaches are going to have a, a good plan. They know what to expect. Uh, they, you know, can learn some things from uh, what happened in, in that previous matchup. So I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I agree with you as well, Scott, that, you know, I even though Utah is favored and they are favored in our projections, um, it's it's going to be a different game, you know. Oregon is a better team than it showed that day. Uh, in addition to the the factors that we can't quite, um, you know, put a number on the motivational factors and things like that, which you could debate that now that Oregon's out of the playoff mix, maybe they won't be as motivated. Um, but you know, regardless, there are certainly uh, some points in Oregon's favor. We talked just a couple of weeks ago about how roster strength is uh, an advantage. Oregon does have a talent edge of nearly two touchdowns in this. So if, if talent were the only factor, just how well teams have recruited, what their you know adjusted for experience and production numbers are in our player ratings model and our roster strength numbers, Oregon would be a two touchdown favorite. But of course, you know, talent isn't the only thing. And, and Utah has, of course, shown its ability to beat Oregon. But if we look at the rest of, 
you know, the entire spectrum, not just of this year, but of the last three to five years in, in the way we do our projected scoring margin model, Utah is favored by two points. If we were to look at just the stats and weight those uh, for the most recent results, but, you know, look at, at a wider window, not just this year, but, but past years as well, Utah is certainly, certainly capable. Cal Whittingham, that program, his coaching staff, you know, they know how to win, and they started off slow this season, lost two games in non-conference play to, uh, you know, weaker teams who you would say, you know, weaker BYU being a, a independent. Of course, that BYU team is a double-digit win team, looks like a great uh, team, and, and has played really well this year. San Diego State, same thing. But at the time, you know, Utah, big favorite. Probably you can make an argument, uh, you know, if they were to play again, Utah would be a, a, a favorite. But Utah figured out its quarterback position, moved to Cam Rising, moved away from Jake Bentley. They've overcome, unfortunately, just some horrific tragedy affecting the roster. That's uh, been a motivational factor, it seems. Uh, and, you know, they found a running back. Tavion Thomas was one of four kind of in the mix early in the season, had some fumbling issues early. He's come on and become an incredibly productive runner. Um, and they're deep at that position. TJ Pledger continues to run well when he gets opportunities. Michael Bernard's had some uh, moments as well. We've seen the receiving core. You know, Britton Covey is, is making plays. Not only he was, you know, returned that punt, as Xavier mentioned, uh, before halftime, but he's come on as a receiver as well. Brent Keithy, the tight end, has done well. Offensively, you know, Utah is, is right now playing like a top 10 offense. Number two in our rushing team performance ratings, number nine in offensive team performance. They've also got a top 20 defense. Devin Lloyd, All-American linebacker, one of the best in the country. Mika Tafua off the edge, all Pac-12 player, uh, you know, has, has been incredibly productive. And this team is is pretty good at, at shutting down opponents' passing games. They're top 20 in passing team performance. Uh, they're only 45th against the run. And Oregon, of course, has, uh, you know, Travis Dye has been incredible this year, stepping into C.J. Verdell's shoes. Byron Cardwell has come on. They've had to lean on the running game with some injuries and some transfers and, and just a lot of uh, kind of weirdness in the receiving core. That unit hasn't been uh, very you know consistent this year. Anthony Brown's been a little hit or miss at quarterback, but I feel like more often than not has put Oregon in a position to succeed. But you know Oregon has a a tremendous offensive line. They've been banged up at different times this year, but they're number two in our O-line performance ratings. The defensive line, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, one of the best players in college football at any position, you know, going to be a, a single-digit draft pick, I think, is is pretty much a slam dunk. Uh, but that defensive line, a little bit of an issue. 79th in our D-line team performance. They've had a lot of injuries in the secondary. So, you know, I'm, I'm bouncing around a lot here, I know. Oddly enough, both offenses are the strength. Both offenses are playing like top 10 units. Both run the football really, really well. Oregon is eighth in offensive team performance, 12th in rushing, uh, 69th passing. Similarly, the defense is okay, but not great. Utah's been playing like a, a top 20 defense. Oregon's actually only playing like a top 50 defense, 50th in defensive team performance, 54th against the pass, 40th against the run. Xavier made a great point that it's not, you know, 
Utah does not have the home field advantage, so that negates things a little bit. But just sort of the the way things you know stack up, Utah has been a slightly better team this year. They're also slightly you know more at full strength. Oregon, in addition to you know secondary, Barone McKinley uh, has been banged up. Steve Stevens has been banged up. They already lost uh, Bennett Williams to this, uh, a season in the injury. Noah Sewell was on the sidelines with his you know, pads off at the end of last game. Sounds like he's good to go, but might not be 100%. So you know, Utah, it, it seems, is a healthier team, a little more consistent team, especially in the second half of the season. So the, the margin is not big. And we are actually on Oregon to cover. Uh, but you know, I, I do think that Utah is rightly favored, and, and it doesn't have – everything to do with the fact that they won and by a big margin. Um, but it's just, these are two fairly evenly matched teams and one just happens to be, you know, slightly better statistically speaking on the defensive side, and then probably just a, a, a little bit healthier as well in Utah. Javier, I don't want to, you know, let you not retort uh, anything you have to add to your previous, uh, you know, talking about this game. Yeah, you know, uh, Nick brought up the psychological aspect of this ball game, and if we're gonna go through psychology and we're gonna do that, then the last time, and it wasn't that long ago, it was only two years ago, the last time Utah saw Oregon in a Pac-12 championship game, it was, it was, you know, we, we we remember what happened. Oregon pretty much handled business, pretty much stopped Utah from having an opportunity to get to its first playoff. Uh, obviously, uh, of school history, Utah came in five, Oregon came in thirteen, Oregon beat them thirty-seven to fifteen. For me, coming into this game, and I won't, I won't, I'll try not to repeat anything I said. And, and this will be the lasting thing I, I do say is when it comes to a blowout win, and for Utah, that was a very impressive victory. But I'm going to be honest with you, you kind of, as a defense, kind of throw that tape out, you know, and, and that's going to be really a little odd coming into this game, right? You, typically, you, you use game tape against, you know, when you play a team twice, you use the game tape that you saw last time. Well, Oregon's offense wasn't really able to do what it wants to do against Utah because of the, the, the second quarter barrage, right? You look at the stats of that game, and they were very un-Oregon-like this year. Anthony Brown threw it almost 40 times. That's not something he does consistently. They only ran the ball 22 times as a team. That Travis Dye sometimes has 22 carries in a night. So I, I think that all the, the other thing that we take from this is where, you know, Oregon can look at Oregon can look at the tape and go, okay, well, this is what Utah wants to do against us, and this is what Utah did really, really well against us, right? On the flip side, Utah can't really look at the film against Oregon and look at what they can and they can look at what they could not do against them, but they're not going to be able to really see the wrinkles and the things that Oregon really wants to do when their offense gets rolling because of the nature in which that game happened. Oregon's entire offensive playbook, for the most part, was thrown out of the window after the second quarter. So that second half where, you know, they're, you know, Anthony Brown is dropping back to pass. That's not something that you're probably going to see all that much from Utah game one or excuse me, on Saturday or and, and for Utah or for Oregon, what you're going to look at from Utah, you're going to say, OK, they had a perfect game. We got another opportunity to beat them here. They literally had a perfect game. They had no turnovers. They had a special team score. Their defense held us to only seven points. They played a perfect ball game. And guess what? We've got an opportunity to rectify that. And you can have that all on film to dissect and make sure that you can't get beat by the same situations like next time, right? So for me, I think that there's 
also in that aspect of, you know, when we look at the psychology of things coming into this game, we've got previous history for a lot of kids who are on this team against Oregon and a lot of Oregon kids who are on that team that beat them two years ago. Cause it's not that long ago. Um, you, heck, it was Kayvon Thibodeau's freshman year, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, you've got that aspect of it. And also from a film and a dissection perspective, there's not really much you can take away from Utah when you look at that film. There's just not because Oregon's offense, for the most part, just wasn't just did not exist for two quarters. And then by the time they tried to kick it up, they were passing the football, which obviously is something we all know Oregon is not does not want to do. They do not want to get into a shootout where their quarterback has to win them the game. So, like I said, I like Oregon in this game. I think they'll handle business. Um, yes, they are beat up, but I think that there's a lot of guys on this team who are playing for pride who know that this is their last game. You mentioned Noah Sewell. You mentioned Kayvon Thibodeau. You mentioned Anthony Brown, which is this is his last go. Travis Dye is probably this his last go. There's a lot of guys that are going to want to finish on top of the Pac-12 and win this game and rectify what was you know an awful performance and essentially ruin their chances to get to the playoff. All right, let's go over to the next championship game, the AAC Houston on the road against Cincinnati. And uh, the spread in this game, if I had it pulled up in time, is Cincinnati by 10. The over-under is 52.5. How do we see this game playing out, Nick? I'm really excited to watch this one. And and uh, part of it, you know, Houston is, is a team that I was a little nervous about in the summer because I, I tweeted it out and, and we talked about it on that preview show, we had Houston favored in all 12 regular season games. And, you know, I didn't realize it initially when we did the first run and, and published our team profiles for the first time. Uh, it didn't quite, you know, hit me at, at the time. Um, but somewhere along the way, we're getting ready for that AAC preview show and realize, hey, this, you know, Houston team favored in all 12 games. That's that's something, you know, is this going to be a really good team or is something wrong with our numbers? I got even more nervous when uh, Houston lost in week one against Texas Tech, gave up an early lead, didn't, you know, that that really sort of shook my confidence, wasn't quite sure if uh, if we were on that, hey, something's wrong side of the, the equation. But, you know, all they've done since is win, and, and Houston has been a solid team. We've talked about them a few times, a few previews this year and mention, you know, guys like Clayton Toon, the starting quarterback, Nathaniel Dells had a, uh, an excellent year as the top receiver there. Guys like Keyshawn Carter and Jeremy uh, Singleton have, have played well. Uh, and then, you know, defensively, they've got an All-American in Marcus Jones, who is, you know, senior bowl guy going off to uh, a great pro career, I would expect. One of the best special teams players that we've seen in a long time. I mean, his you know return number of return touchdowns has just been incredible. Uh, they've used him even a little bit on offense, but you know the defense has really carried this team this season. Um, you know, they they certainly you know the the, the receivers. Yes, freshman quarterback Alton or uh, excuse me, freshman running back Alton McCaskill's had a, an excellent year, a uh, ton of touchdowns. Toon has been very, very good. He's a productive runner in addition to a solid passer, but they're playing top 10 level defense. I mean, 10th and, or excuse me, ninth in defensive team performance, sixth against the pass, 19th against the run. And a lot of the numbers are just solid. I mean, the, the worst of our five uh, important stats that I mentioned most weeks, 
they finished 19th in the regular season in yards per pass allowed and a very solid 6.5 yards. I mean, that, you know, if you could do that each game, you're probably in a, in a pretty good spot. But they are 12th in yards per play allowed against FBS opponents, 13th in points per drive against FBS opponents filtered for garbage time. They're fourth in success rate in those same situations and then sixth in predicted points added uh, according to collegefootballdata.com. So, you know, this defense and yeah, the same as as we might talk about with Cincinnati, the competition hasn't always been the t- toughest, but they are ranking consistently uh, among the top 20 units in college football on that side of the ball and, you know, put it together with an offense that 55th in offensive team performance, but a lot of the stats are, are a little bit better, uh, including top 25 in points per drive and yards per pass attempt. And when we look at them, you know, on the margin or, or in the net scenario, they're 12th in net yards per play, 8th in net points per drive, 12th in net, uh, net yards per pass attempt, 10th in net success rate, and 8th in EPA or PPA margin. So this, this Houston team is so far, uh, you know, at least as far as conference opponents, the biggest challenger to Cincinnati. And they they seem, especially how, you know, SMU is, has really fallen off uh, once the, the Sonny Dykes, you know, rumors and reports really got going. Uh, they they fell apart in the second half. We, we talked a few weeks ago about SMU maybe being that, that by far the best conference team that Cincinnati's played, it's definitely Houston. And, you know, they're an 11-win team. I think they're capable. Talent profile is is pretty similar. Cincinnati's been a little more, more homegrown, even though they do have, you know, some transfers here or there. Uh, but Houston, at least on defense, you know, really in, in the secondary most specifically, uh, really leaned in to the transfer portal the last few years. The wide receiver core, a lot of transfers there as well. Uh, but, you know, Cincinnati's put together a top 15 roster in our roster strength numbers, top 10 on offense, top 20 defensively. You know, Houston's not too far off. I mean, top 25 overall uh, and 13 defensively. They have a quarterback, one of the better quarterbacks that the Cincinnati uh, Cincinnati defense will have faced. And I spent a lot of time, you know, looking uh, or talking about the numbers for Houston. Cincinnati is every bit as good defensively and, and you know, in a lot of cases better. Their worst of those five uh, big stats is success rate allowed. They're 15th. They're top five in the other four. So, you know, Cincinnati has been, of course, in the playoff discussion, they've been number four in our power rankings for a while. Uh, they're number four in the playoff rankings, and it seems like if they're going to beat a 10-win ranked uh, or an 11-win and, and ranked Houston team, that you would think will be good enough to get them into the playoff. And so far, they've they've played you know kind of like a play, like a playoff team. We do take into account strength of schedule in our team performance numbers. And they're playing like the fifth best team in the country. So they are playing at a playoff caliber level. Desmond Ritter has been a, a solid, sometimes very, very good quarterback. Um, gets some you know, NFL buzz from time to time. And, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for him looking ahead. Jerome Ford, been a little bit banged up, but an excellent running back. Alabama transfer. Alec Pierce, athletically gifted, one of the better receivers in 
the American, multiple tight ends, other receivers uh, in the mix as well, an offensive line that ranks 15th in our performance numbers, a defensive line that's top 30. I mean, it's going to be a great matchup. And the numbers, you know, you mentioned Houston being favored by 10. We're pretty close when we were, uh, you know, putting the the uh, initial set of projections together uh, on Sunday night last week. It was double digits that, that we had Cincinnati favored. It's come down a bit, so we are on Houston to cover. Uh, but the number for us is is firmly in single digits now at nine point zero five. So our final score projections thirty two twenty three. I. I think that I'd rather be on that side. I mean, this is a game that Cincinnati probably should win, but I do think it'll be a legitimate test. And it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me at all if this game is within a touchdown. So I, I think it'll be, you know, one of the more exciting uh, Cincinnati games we've seen in a while. And I know they haven't been dominant in the month of, you know, late October to, to early November, um, but I do think that Houston's really going to give them a test. So I'm excited to see what, you know, Clayton Toon can do, McCaskill, see what he can do, uh, and see if that Houston defense is as good as those uh, numbers, you know, kind of show that they have been this season. Uh, Xavier, what are your thoughts on this game? You think Cincinnati wins this one going away? You think Houston has a shot? Uh, what's going to happen here? Yeah, I think Cincinnati needs to win this going away. I, I think that the committee – for all intents and purposes, it, it, I won't say they're they're hoping that Cincinnati doesn't win this game going away, but the, the Cincinnati, this will be a huge resume win for them, right? And, and if they can win the game handedly, you know, and, and make make a statement, obviously, then that'll do nothing but help them in their argument, obviously, coming next Tuesday. Uh, I, I think when you look at, excuse me, when you look at this game, you've got to look at it uh, similarly to the way I, I kind of dissected the SMU matchup. Houston's a really offensively explosive team, right? This is a team that can get up and down the field. This is a team that likes to have quick drives. Clayton Toon is a guy who wants to spread the football around, and that's where Cincinnati's secondary comes into play. Once again, their secondary, in my opinion, is one of the top seven, top ten secondaries in college football this year, you know, just looking at the talent alone. And they've played like it in some games. Some games they've played down, but obviously I think they'll play up in this game like they did in the SMU matchup. And it's really going to come down to whether or not uh, once again, Houston's receivers can win their one-on-ones. And that, for me, is going to be very indicative of how this game goes. If Houston's receivers can can get, you know, a sort of momentum and allow Clayton Toon to, to throw the football around and, you know, he, he begins to get a rhythm, then this is going to be a really tight contest, like Nick was alluding to, uh, to the numbers saying, right? Otherwise, I, I really don't see Houston being able to slow down, you know, Cincinnati's offense to a uh, to a degree that Houston's able to stay in a slugfest type of game, right? I think Houston wants to make this a shootout. Houston wants to get the ball to McCaskill. They want to get it to their dynamic playmakers on the outside, like like Nathaniel Dell, Jeremy Singleton, and company, Jake uh, Herslow as well. And, and they want to make this a, a sprint, not a marathon. And, and I think what you'll see from Cincinnati is the complete opposite. I think this is a team that's going to run methodical drives. There, This is a team that I think is finding, or over the last couple of weeks, has found their identity uh, a little bit more. You know, allowing Jerome Ford the ball more, getting Desmond Ritter out of the pocket a little bit more. Uh, between Ford and Montgomery, they've been, you know, they've 
accounted for over 100 yards over the last three games. So I, I think that you're seeing from, from Cincinnati a little bit more of an identity shift. And I talked about this kind of during the SMU week where I felt that they allowed Desmond Ritter to get a little bit more athletic in what he was doing. And you saw that a little bit against South Florida. And I think that the, he carries that this week. Uh, you know, Desmond Ritter against South Florida when when I think the offense kind of shifted, he had 13 carries for 65 yards and a touchdown. You know, and from that, you saw the offense take a shift. Desmond Ritter kind of got to what they were doing last season, which was allowing him to be more of an athlete and less of him having to sit in the pocket and be more of a – and having to dissect, you know, a, a coverage rather than saying, okay, I'm going to give you two really good reads and a check down. And if those guys aren't there for you, take off. And I think that's what makes Desmond Ritter such a great quarterback is he has that ability to do so. But I feel like Clayton Toon, where he is athletic enough to get out of the pocket, is going to have a hard time finding open receivers, and that's where guys like Majai Sanders and company are allowed to get to the quarterback and, and you know, do what they do and, and feast, um, which they have been able to do all year. And if Cincinnati, and, I, and I'll end with this, if Cincinnati can rush four and, you know, and get to the quarterback, this is going to be a long afternoon. It's going to be a very, very long afternoon for Houston because uh, Cincinnati is not a, a team that like, loves to bring pressure. They like to be able to bring four and, and drop seven, and, and they're going to have to do so against a Houston team that's probably gonna, that's going to have them at least four wide every time. You know, the very rarely, if at all, will you see Houston, you know, get into a single back set whatsoever. And so if Houston or if Cincinnati is allowed to rush four and be able to cover on the back end, Cincinnati is going to win this game running away. Um, and I think they're able to do that on Saturday. Will they probably have to bring pressure a couple of times, maybe early on in the contest? But I think that secondary, which they've leaned on so much this season when they needed a big play, when they needed consistent play, especially in games like against Notre Dame and Indiana, they're going to continue to show up like they have all season. And, and Cincinnati will win this game pretty handedly. All right. Let's go over to the next game up here is the Big 12 championship between Baylor and and Oklahoma State in Dallas. This should be a very, very fun game here, Nick. And the line here is Oklahoma State by four and a half. The over-under is 46 and a half. How do we see this one playing? So this is another matchup that uh, rematch that we've seen from earlier this season. Of course, not as recent as the Oregon-Utah game. Baylor and Oklahoma State played in early October, where we didn't quite know exactly what either team was at that point. I mean, certainly neither uh, was expected to, you know, be the big 12 champion. I mean, early in October, we were still, you know, I was still plugging Oklahoma week to week as a national championship favorite. Hadn't quite fallen off the bandwagon there yet. Oklahoma state had, you know, looked good, but uh, was just coming off, an upset over Boise State. Remember that? That seems like you know years ago now. But uh, they were an underdog in that game, then beat Kansas State, and you know we still just didn't quite know uh, that Oklahoma State was nearly as good as they turned out to be. We didn't really know. I mean, it seemed almost like there were some earlier signs because Iowa State, uh, Baylor had just knocked off Iowa State the previous week that maybe they were starting to look like at least a team that could make some noise in the big 12, but probably most folks still, you know, thought Oklahoma was the, the heavy favorite. And then maybe Iowa state would still find a way to get back in and, and get a rematch or Texas. Right. So uh, for these two teams, these are our, our, you know, when they met in October it was much, much different uh, circumstances, of course, Oklahoma state, 
won that game, is a favorite in this game. Our numbers do have them favored. Oklahoma State has been, you know, similar in, in a lot of ways to what we were just saying about Houston and Cincinnati, a defense-led team, one of the best defenses in the country. Um, they will, you know, they were able to keep Oklahoma in check, especially late in that game, um, to, to get through, get a win, and they've leaned on that defense all year. They've needed it because they only rank 72nd in offensive team performance. We've seen, I think, some, you know, at least some individual uh, performances. You know, Spencer Sanders has, has come up, made a play here or there when he needed it. Tay Martin has been really, really impressive uh, as their, you know, top receiver. They've been able to lean on Jalen Warren a little bit at running back. The offensive line, you know, mediocre, 60th in our line performance ratings, but they're a top five and and overall defensively number two in our defensive team performance. They've been excellent against the pass. They're third in team performance defensively, and then sixth against the run. They rank second in EPA per play defensively, second in points per drive, fifth in yards per play allowed, fifth in success rate, all those FBS opponents only, mostly filtered for garbage time. So this is one of the best defenses in the country. Uh, you know, Baylor is is still going to have a, a big, big test going up against that Oklahoma State defense. We don't know if Gary Bohannon is going to be able to play. He's probably not going to be 100% even if he does. So they're going to have to lean on Abram Smith and Tristan Ebner more than ever. And they've been one of the best running back duos in the country. Ebner had a huge game, you know, helping out as, as uh, a receiver out of the backfield last week, helps on special teams as well. But Smith has really turned into that just, you know, bell cow type running back. He's had a huge, huge year, and they're top 10 in, in our rushing offensive team performance numbers, top 20 overall. But the passing numbers were, you know, really, really good early in the season. They've tailed off a little bit or just haven't been you know super consistent especially with Bohannon out they're going to be leaning on that run game I love what Dave Aranda has done as a head coach there at Baylor defensively he's one of the best uh X's and O's guys in the country I mean I, I think there's been a lot of talk about oh Lincoln Riley wanted to leave to not have to deal with the SEC and I know you know they're going to be going to the SEC and and uh Baylor won't but I I think it might even be more that Riley might want to get away from Dave Aranda. I mean, he's, we talked a little bit uh, last week about how I thought Riley might be one of those guys that I kind of fell in love with as a play caller and thought, Oh, you know, how is this, how are teams ever going to lose with Lincoln Riley calling the plays? And it, it seems like he still has a little bit of that in, in the early things we've seen at USC, but you know what he didn't. And, and Oklahoma struggled against Baylor and Aranda and maybe, you know, Aranda has, has kind of figured out Riley and, and his offense a little bit. And the more that they were going to play one another, you know, maybe, maybe Riley's star would, would dim just a little bit. Uh, so I, you know, I think that this is going to be a, a defensive game, not only just because Oklahoma state has been so good. So Baylor is, you know, as far as our numbers go, slightly better on the offensive side of the ball. They're 20th on offensive team performance, 31 on defense. But I, I do still think that that both defenses are probably what's going to lead this team. I think, you know, Baylor will have a defensive advantage against the Oklahoma State offense. I think the Oklahoma State defense, you know, 
have to, to limit that run game, but still should have an advantage there. So expect that this will be a fairly low scoring game. Our projections have it both in the 20s. We're, we're probably a little too high. I know the uh, the over-under is, is 46 and a half, or at least it was when we uh, released it officially last night. This seems like a, a you know, 21-17, 24-21 type game. So I think we have probably a few too many points on here. I, I, I don't know that Oklahoma State's going to get to 29, uh, but I do think that Oklahoma State has, you know, the ability to make enough plays to win the game. I'm not sure Baylor, especially with a little bit of question at the quarterback position, is going to be able to put up, you know, 24 points or more against that Oklahoma State defense. So I think Oklahoma State wins. Our projection is right in line with the odds makers. 29-24 is that final score. So we're technically on Baylor to cover the five and a half. Uh, I think it'll be a close game, probably decided by a field goal. Could be a game that that Baylor wins. I don't think it's out of the realm of, of possibility. You know, obviously less than a touchdown uh, favorite there. It's it's certainly within reach for Baylor, but I do think that Oklahoma State is rightly favored, and I think they'll get a slim uh, a slim win, probably by a field goal, uh, closer to a field goal than a touchdown. Xavier, how do you see it playing out? Do you think it's this close, or do you think it's one way or the other? I think both offenses are going to lend it to being so close. I'll be honest with you. When you when you, when you look at both offenses, the word explosive doesn't necessarily come to mind. Both offenses like to run the football. They like to keep the ball on the ground. Uh, Spencer Sanders may you know rear back and throw a couple of them, but ultimately what they want to do is they want to run the football. They want to control the the line of scrimmage. And, and if they get explosive plays, it'll be long runs rather than deep passes. And, and so we're gonna you know take it back to a little bit of the 1990s with the way that these offenses may look a little bit. Maybe they'd be you know may, maybe not running out of the shotgun as much as some of these teams do, but it's gonna be a very run heavy game. This game might end like 30 minutes early because of that uh but i think when it when we look at this game i think it's what defense can be more opportunistic i think it's going to be the team that ends up winning this game you know i, I think when you look at both teams i think you look at the fact that they don't really turn the ball overall too much you know they, they like to keep it you know close to the chest they don't really uh, allow themselves to even turn the ball over with their play call uh and i think when you look at that i, I think you you suggest that you know, whatever defense can get the most opportunistic plays. And I'm not just talking about interceptions. I'm not just talking about fumble recoveries. I'm also talking about tackles for loss. I'm talking about sacks, things that can derail offenses that aren't suited to throwing the football, right? We saw Oklahoma State this past weekend against Oklahoma, you know, outside of really the the first two drives, I'd say, they tried, you know, they, they, they threw a couple of deep balls, which I think caught Oklahoma uh, by surprise. But the rest of the game, they kind of got back to what they like to do, right? They, they ran the football. Spencer Sanders had to run the football a lot, but they got back to what they like to do in that second half, which was run the football, control the clock with him and Jalen Warren. And that's what Oklahoma State really is. Now, Oklahoma State, like I said, came out a little bit different in uh, against Oklahoma. But I don't know if they're going to be able to do that against a front seven or front four, excuse me, with Baylor that has been able to get up after the quarterback pretty well just on their own merit, right? Just the four of them, not really Aranda having to send, you know, a, a, a menagerie of, of different blitzes, right? He's been able to really kind of get to the quarterback then. And then if you really look at the first game that they played, Spencer Sanders threw three picks and Oklahoma State still won. That's, that's kind of worrisome to an extent. If I'm a, if I'm a Baylor fan, 
because that means my offense was just so inept that with even three turnovers, we couldn't muster a, a, a muster enough to beat Oklahoma State. You know, and so that's a little bit of a concern if you're Oklahoma, if you're Baylor, excuse me. And that was was with Bohannon that quarterback. However, that was only five weeks into the season, so maybe we don't pull from it too much. Maybe he's gotten his footing a little bit better. The only issue is from that Baylor offense, I haven't seen like an explosive game since like October. This is like the first week of October, right? I haven't seen a massively explosive game where I where I think that offense has turned a corner. Even last week against Texas Tech, the offense was okay, right? Now, obviously, there was a quarterback change, but the offense wasn't explosive by any means. It kind of let Texas Tech hang around a little bit, obviously leading to Texas Tech having an opportunity late in that game to, you know, to take it to overtime. So that's why I'm going to lean here on Oklahoma State. I just don't know if Baylor's offense is good enough uh, to, to take advantage uh, of an Oklahoma State offense that I feel is is rather one-dimensional when you really look at it because any game that Spencer Sanders has been asked to throw more than 30 times this year, he's thrown a pick or more. So, you know, that's not their bread and butter, you know. So I, I think that in this game, the only way Baylor's able to come through and win is if their offense sees, sees, a, sees a jump in production in this game. Maybe Bohannon's able to hit a couple of receivers downfield early and get that momentum rolling, and then later on they're just able to milk the clock and run the football. But Oklahoma State, in my opinion, at this point I feel more confident in because they've shown me they can win in a myriad of ways, winning a shootout last week against Oklahoma, being able to win you know, some bully, you know, maybe being able to bully some teams. And like I said last week, uh, in the Oklahoma game that we talked about, Oklahoma State has been impressive in October and November against the contest they win. Oklahoma State, for instance, beat Texas Tech 23 to nothing. That's an impressive win versus Baylor last week only being able to win 27-24 off of a missed field goal that would have tied the game. So I'm going to go Oklahoma State here. I'm confident uh, that the Cowboys are able to win this game. And if they win the game, you've really got to think that they make the playoffs. You know, barring anything but an Alabama win on Saturday, you've got to think that they're the fourth team in, or not the third team in, uh, after these after beating Oklahoma last week, and if they're able to beat a top ten Baylor team this week. All right, next game up here, we have the Big Ten Championship: Michigan, a ten and a half point favorite against Iowa. Uh, 43 and a half is the over here. This game is in Indianapolis, I believe, and. Um, I don't know, man. This could be a letdown spot for Michigan. It wouldn't it be the most Michigan thing ever, Nick, to beat Ohio State and then lose to Iowa in the Big Twelve or the Big Ten Championship and not make the playoff because of that? Like, uh, I can't imagine that it happens. I think Michigan comes to play. I think they beat the doors off of uh, Iowa. We've seen not a lot from Iowa offensively. They had a little spark at the end of that Nebraska game, but it was close against Nebraska. So I just don't see this one going well them but how do you see it playing out well i think it'd be you know one of the most iowa things ever if if they were able to come out and just shut down michigan coming off of a, a huge win now everybody is you know celebrating michigan all week after years and years of uh just sort of piling on and and talking about michigan failing to meet expectations and Jim Harbaugh can't get over. I have no idea who he's talking about Xavier at all. I don't know who would celebrate Michigan losing games. So you can't even put my khakis back in the closet. (laughs) He can't even narrow it down. I mean, it's, it's been uh, just part of the college football, you know, topic of, of conversation for years. And Michigan, I think is, has been, 
an excellent, excellent team this year. I mean, they completely several Michigan games in our weekly discussions. And, and I've talked about how the talent profile had fallen off and Michigan, you know, coming into the year was in the forties in our power rankings. And so we certainly didn't expect them to play like a playoff caliber team or, you know, a, a top 10 team, even at times the top 25 team seemed a little unrealistic, just sort of the way things were trending, but they, uh, you know, completely flipped the script and, and uh, Michigan has been one of the most impressive turnarounds when you compare just sort of last year's results to this season, the defense looks great. I mean, talked about Aiden Hutchinson, but uh, it's, it's not just, you know, a one man defense. They're playing at a top 10 level. They're 11th in defensive team performance, uh, number five against the pass and 13th against the run. So it's been a well-balanced unit. It's fairly difficult to attack this defense, the you know new coaching staff has had an immediate impact, and offensively, we're really seeing some uh, some growth, some movement, and it's without an elite quarterback. and And that was sort of the you know that's been the question for a while, the quarterback position, and and it looked like when Shea Patterson was there uh, early on that maybe he was going to you know jolt that offense into kind of a a, a more explosive kind of modern uh, unit that didn't quite work out last year. Joe Milton, you know, looks like he was made in a factory, just the, the prototypical longtime prototypical uh, NFL quarterback, what you want. And that just didn't work out. Cade McNamara has been, you know, kind of the, well, we'll just, we'll go to Cade McNamara. Uh, but he's, you know, game manager, whatever you want to call, but, but he's, he's, won the job, held on to the job, and, and played well enough that, you know, a, a five-star true freshman in J.J. McCarthy, who is too talented to keep on the bench the entire game, they've played him plenty. But, you know, McNamara has been been good, just hasn't made a ton of mistakes. The running game, they're, they're similar to Baylor in that way, uh, you know, in a lot of ways better, even though the numbers, they're only 20th in rushing team performance. They have been been consistently able to run the football with Hassan Haskins, Blake Corum when he's healthy. It was good to see him back on the field and, and look pretty healthy last week against Ohio State. Donovan Edwards, the other uh, highly ranked true freshman who had a huge game as a receiver out of the backfield a couple of weeks ago, but has found different ways to contribute, even though he's not getting you know number one, number two type carries most of the year. And, and we've seen some receivers come up with big moments. Cornelius Johnson had a big play. Uh, last week, Andrew Anthony had a huge game a few weeks ago. They, they've gotten, uh, you know, AJ Henning uh, had a had a big play recently as well. I mean, they're they're not household names. They're not putting up huge numbers, but they're making plays in big spots that are able to to put Michigan in position to win games. And this year, Michigan has won a lot of football games. They've absolutely earned their right to be in the Big Ten championship game. They've absolutely earn the ride, I think, if they're able to get through this, uh, you know, 12 and one with a win over Ohio State, the only loss, a very respectable, uh, close loss to Michigan State team that's been sniffing around the, the playoff rankings early on and, and played like a top 10 team at times, at least as far as, uh, you know, the, the committee and the um, pollsters go. Michigan, I think, has that 
playoff resume and they were second in the playoff rankings anyway. Right. So uh, they win their in and, and as someone who has a hundred to one national championship, I hadn't even mentioned it. I've been talking about Oklahoma all year and, and Georgia. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a hundred to one on uh, Michigan as well. So I'm, I, you know, I hope they get in the playoff and, and we'll see what happens. Uh, but Iowa, you know, uh, is, is just a strange team. Year after year, our numbers have actually been pretty good on Iowa, sort of the first three years we've done this. But part of the reason is because we've got our head coaching ratings where we, we uh, do, you know, we're able to, to take a team that doesn't have a high talent profile, and Iowa ranks 67th in roster strength, 64th on offense, 74th on defense. But they've been able to, to play much better than that. And a lot of that is, is credit to Kirk Ferentz and, and uh, Phil Parker, the defensive coordinator. You know, they've played like a top 10 team, weighted team performance coming into this year. The last three years, they ranked eight. The last five years, they ranked ninth. This year, believe it or not, as a 10-win team, they have fallen off of that. They ranked 57th overall in team performance. They're 46th in our power rankings. They rank 120th in offensive team performance. And even the defense, which we were talking about the first half of the year, was just you know so incredible. Uh, it, it's come down a little bit. I mean, this was a top 10 defense uh, you know, each of the last two years, sixth in 2020, in, or excuse me, second in 2020 in uh, defensive team performance, 12th in 2019, 10th in 2018, 12th in 2017. And, you know, they're, they're at 12th right now. So consistent with what it's been the last few years, but not the elite unit it looked like early on in the year. And they've certainly had some injuries. Uh, you know, the secondary has been, been banged up. Riley Moss is playing with a torn ligament in his knee. Matt Hankins hasn't been available the last couple of weeks. Jack Corner has been uh, sidelined at times. So, you know, this this Iowa defense is very good and has put the team in position to, to have a lot of short fields. So they've been able to, to score enough uh, to win 10 games, even though that, that offense has just been, at times, really, really bad, quite honestly. But going back to the the original start of the conversation, it would kind of be the most Iowa thing ever for, you know, I mentioned our numbers in recent years were so good on Iowa. It's partly because the expectations were low. This year, our numbers haven't been great on Iowa because they started to creep up and Iowa was a favorite and we had Iowa as an even bigger favorite when they were, you know, keeping games close or in the second half of the year losing uh, a couple of games. But Maybe maybe this is the time that I was able to you know catch a little bit of a hangover effect for Michigan. Uh, you know, find you talked about that that Auburn magic. Iowa's got a little bit of that magic as well, where they you know can shorten the game, can cause a turnover, can score on defense. Uh, a lot of things tend to to go right that are somewhat unexpected for Iowa, and this is a spot finally where they're a pretty big underdog double-digit underdog, and, you know, our, our numbers like Michigan more. Obviously, Iowa being 46th in our power rankings, uh, we're not going to have Michigan favorite. But we have it as single digits. We have it as, as uh, Michigan is a 9.78 uh, favorite. We are over the 43.5, but just barely. Our, our uh, predicted final score, a pretty low one for us, 28 to 18. 
uh, probably a 24-14, you know, sounds about right. Maybe even a 21 to, you know, 21-14, 21-17, something like that. I think Michigan is absolutely the better team. But I think Iowa is good enough and plays a style of football that they're able to keep things close, especially it seems when, you know, expectations are are heavy on the other side. And there might be a little bit of a, you know, there shouldn't be certainly Big Ten championship game playoff uh, on the line. Shouldn't be a letdown, but maybe there's just something outside of, uh, you know, the numbers, the, the players themselves, and, and you know, what position has an edge and, and whatnot, that just this could be a spot where maybe Michigan's not quite ready to go out and, and you know, beat uh, uh, an opponent in a conference championship game by multiple scores. Last week, the way they played against Ohio State, they are absolutely capable of doing that. I would not be shocked if they win by two or three touchdowns. Certainly they're capable of that. But maybe it's a little bit of wishful thinking. Maybe it's a little bit of, uh, you know, knowing how our numbers deal with Iowa. And I'd much rather be on Iowa as an underdog than a favorite. You know, I'm buying in a little bit that they're able to keep this close within the 10 and a half. I don't expect a lot of points. That also, you know, you would think would would uh, lean toward the underdog when it's when it's expected to be such a, a low total. But 2818 is our, our predicted final score. Something in that range, probably a little lower scoring, seems about right. I think I'd rather be on Iowa, but this is a game that Michigan should win and should punch their ticket to the playoff. Xavier, are you uh, are you in on Michigan? Do you think Iowa has a shot to actually pull this upset off? Is this a letdown spot? I mean, like I said, would be pretty Michigan-y to uh, beat Ohio State finally and then lose this game. But I just don't see how it happens. How do you see this game playing out? I mean, Iowa plays a brand of football that when they're the underdogs, it makes it very compelling because Iowa's going to ugly it up. Iowa's going to make it a sloppy contest. They're going to force Michigan to beat them in ways in which Michigan doesn't necessarily want to, right? They're going to pack the box. They're going to say Blake Corum. They're not going to run the football on us. We're going to make, you know – we're going to make McNamara, the, the, you know, the quarterback that you hope he could be, right? And I think that that's where Michigan in the past, I think, would have lost this ball game, You know, but, but Michigan's defense this year has been what has and at times carried them. And I think that for me is why I think Michigan wins this ball game with the guys like a, uh, Hutchinson uh, and the other defensive end's name is just escaping me right now. Uh, but, you know, those two have been amazing this year. You know, and I think when you look at Michigan, the way even which they beat Ohio State was their defense. Yeah, their offense put up, you know, a heck of a lot of points. And Corum and Haskins, Haskins ran for five TDs. And, you know, the offensive line for Michigan was dominating up front. Uh, you know, thank you, Nick, David Jobo. And, and, and or a jabo and, and so as good as that offense was ohio state's offense couldn't get go the the, the the offense at times in that game was just purely stagnant and you go from that which was you know a spread offense you've got three to four you know possible first round picks at receiver uh, a guy in cj stroud will probably be a first round quarterback to spencer petrus you know, and to what that Iowa offense is going to give you, which is going to be the 16, 17 play drives where they're going to try to keep you, you know, they might have to complete five third downs to get to the red zone. And that's just going to be how they play football. And that's how they play football this season. 
you know, but but the the only question that I have for Michigan coming into this game is does the pressure get to them? You know, do those tacky do those khaki pants get a little too tight? You know, that's that's my biggest question. Is is I I don't Michigan has not been in a spot with this much pressure in a very long time. They just haven't. I don't know the last time. Well, you guys can tell me. Obviously, when 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 was the last time Michigan was an out and out national championship contender going into the final game of the year? I mean, do you like that, Nick? He's like, you old guys can tell me. When was the last time that Michigan was a title contender? It might have been well, like Nick was, the Nick was a football historian. Yeah, Nick was a football historian at one point. So this is why I'm asking that question. I, I right. can't type fast enough for Nick's brain. I, my history is not quite as good as it as it once was, but we'll we'll look it up real. And it at least quick. doesn't the go last... that far back. So you know. <laughs> uh, so in in 2016, uh, Jim Harbaugh's second year, they finished 10 and three. They were number was that the year? two uh, in the AP poll, and and that was when they, uh, yeah, they they started nine and zero, lost to Iowa, beat Indiana, and then uh, against Ohio State, the spot right. That was the that was the year, uh, thirty twenty seven. They lost that game, and they lost by one to Florida State in the Orange Bowl. That's right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, uh, yeah. Okay, so when we when we look at it, right, and and. I don't want to make this a negative thing that they just beat Ohio State, but I'm going to be I'm going to completely be completely honest with you, right? Michigan just beat Ohio State for the first time in what I can't I can't remember exactly how many years it was, but if you look at both teams and you look at how things are trending forward, Ohio State probably is going to bring back much of the talent that they had like this year, where Michigan's probably going to lose most of going to lose most of the deficient uh, defensive talent that they had this year. Ohio State's probably going to come into the favorite going into the next year. If I'm Michigan, and for Michigan fans, they are going to attempt right now to maximize their opportunity that they have right now. You th- you know, Harbaugh thinks that beating Ohio State was probably the biggest thing of his career. You could see it after the game was over, you know, the elation on his face, more like, honestly, it just looked like relief more than anything uh, that he got over that hump. But, but, but now the real expectations come. You had no expectations last week to beat Ohio State. Zero. None whatsoever. I think I, if I did a poll with, with, throughout all of Twitter, I think it would have come back like 85, 15 people who thought Ohio State was going to beat Michigan last week. And the 15% probably was mostly Michigan fans. Now the expectations are here. Now you're supposed to beat this Iowa team. Matter of fact, after beating Ohio State in the manner in which you did, a lot of people are going to think you're supposed to dominate this Iowa team because this Iowa team has lost to a Purdue. This Iowa team has been able has been very pedestrian offensively over the last you know two and a half months. And there's no way you're going to allow a lowly Iowa team who's, you know, who couldn't stop David Bell from going over 200 yards in one game is now going to all of a sudden beat the mighty Michigan Wolverines who are now who have just beat Ohio State. That's the only reason why I say or I think Michigan loses this game is if that pressure gets to them and they start the game off with a turnover or Iowa starts off up 10 nothing and all of a sudden Michigan, you know, you know, the narratives will be what they were, you know, for Harbaugh, you know, he can't win the big game. Right. And if that begins to creep in and Michigan does end up, you know, getting down to Iowa, like I said, Iowa's got nothing to play for whatsoever. This feels like the Big Ten championship game. I think it was three or four years ago. Ohio State had an opportunity to win and, and get to the playoff, and they blew it to a Wisconsin team that had no business on the same field with them. And and, and for me, it makes 
for the uh, an amazing narrative coming into this game, but there's a lot of pressure riding on Michigan to win this game and get to the playoff because for all intents and purposes, it's what I've been hearing about Georgia all year. You guys are the best team in the country. You're supposed to beat these teams, right? It's the same. Now it's all Michigan. You're supposed to beat Iowa. This is what you do now, you know, and in Harbaugh's case, he hasn't played well, particularly against Iowa. He's one and one in his tenure there. And even then, last time that they beat Iowa in Michigan, they won 10-3. It was a complete slugfest, a snooze fest, if you will. I think Iowa's going to try to do that again on Saturday and muddle it up for four quarters. And by the time the fourth quarter comes around, it's going to be like 17-14 with Iowa with the ball at midfield. And let's see what happens. That's how I feel. I mean, uh, we'll see. I th- I think I think this is a game Michigan cannot afford to lose. They have to at least be in the playoff. Because this would be the first time they're in the playoff, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So th- this has to be. They yeah, go got to win. You guys got me looking looking up uh, you know, recent <laughs> Big Ten street uh, with the with the start of this. Uh, Michigan was also ranked fourth going into the Ohio State game in 2018. They got beat. Uh, Th- that's why they got ignored this year. Uh, it is because mm-hmm. they've been ranked high. Yeah. And then lost to Ohio State every single time. So it's kind of like, that's eh, two versus five. But we know that Ohio mm-hmm. State's going to win mm-hmm. this game. Michigan's going to fall back to eight or nine or whatever. And then this is, it's going to be like every year. And they finally won it. So uh, yeah. that's why, you know, a lot of people are kind of celebrating. I mean, I look, I don't like Jim Harbaugh, but I love my old roommate. And he is the biggest Michigan fan ever so i was very very happy for him at least so i think everybody knows some michigan fans that were exercising some demons on saturday and uh living it up so uh you know it it is at least nice to see the other side and make it a you know at least a game every time and i think the big 10 championship game that xavier was alluding to was in 2013 the last year the legends and leaders divisions michigan state beat number two ohio state since then, Ohio yes, State's been pretty, pretty, pretty down. They they escaped a Wisconsin upset in twenty. Actually, they were the lower ranked team in twenty seventeen. Anyway, uh, but yeah, that, that Michigan State uh, cost Ohio State a, a shot at national championship game in in twenty thirteen. Right. So there, I mean, there's a lot of history. So uh, you know, happy to see it become a game again. So we'll see if Michigan can not do the Michigan-like stuff and pull this off going away. Uh, the ACC title game is uh, expected to be a very, very high-scoring one here, Nick. 71.5 is the over for Pitt versus Wake Forest. Uh, 2.5 in Pitt's favor is the spread. This game will be being played, I believe, in North Carolina at Bank of America Stadium. So how do we see the ACC title going off without Clemson this year, finally? So so I've been thinking a lot about the uh, preseason podcast series we did, the, the conference previews. And, you know, Pitt is one that I remember a lot. We talked about, a, a, you know, one of those anonymous coaches talking about Pitt and how they just inexplicably, you know, lose games that they shouldn't, but then they'll turn around and, and win some games that you wouldn't expect as well. And, you know, this Pitt team is, is 10 and 2. One of those two losses was one of those real head scratchers against a wish, uh, Western Michigan team that you know wasn't a team has been uh, much more consistent this year, I think, than than probably 
many of us expected. A lot of that has to do with Kenny Pickett, who's played like a Heisman contender a lot of the year. I would expect that he might fall a little bit short of you know the trophy itself, certainly maybe even making it to New York, but he's played at, at an incredibly high level all season. Jordan Addison has been one of the most productive receivers in college football. Um, you know, they've they've leaned really heavily on the passing game. They rank fifth in passing team performance, only 72nd running the football. Uh, but they've got a, a deep, you know, trio of running backs as well. Is uh, Israel Abaconda has been really impressive at times. He's been banged up recently. We've seen a lot, a lot more of true freshmen. They've got talented guys that they can hand the football off to. But of course, you know, this pit offense is built around Kenny Pickett, his receiving core, a couple of really, really good tight ends. Freshman Gavin Bartholomew, Addison's carried a lot. Did you lose me? And I can't hear you now. Scott's muted. I got you. Uh, my Scott's bad. Muted. Okay. And yeah, you yeah. were. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I it was, was trying to let. I was trying Jeez. to let you go through it, but it's just it's way too choppy. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Shoot. Is is anyone else running internet in your house? Do you have a bunch of tabs on? open? Yeah. Is your phone on? Uh, I mean, I always, you know, I I always have a bunch of tabs open. I think it's just, you know, new spot. The new spot. Uh, yeah, I understand. Are you hardline? Let me, let me see what I can do. No. No, let me see. I can turn that down, turn that off, get rid of that. See if I, I can close some uh, some of these things. My the funniest part is the funniest. The funniest part is like Nick. We can hear Nick perfectly right now when he's not doing anything. <laughs> it like Nick, you, you sound. It did chop up a couple times, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was like, like like you sound the clearest since you've come back. Right. Right. Um, okay, so you close some tabs. Want to try to Nick, turn your that? camera off? Yeah, turn your camera off too. Yeah, because that can eat up a little bit of uh, bandwidth there too. How do I do that? Where am I? So go to cam mic at the bottom, and then uh, you stop cam cam mic. Yeah, stop cam will work. Uh, that's that, not down at the bottom of the stream yard it just page. says facetime hd mute yeah yeah I, I see that and then it and then it gives me camera and then it just says facetime hd camera show advanced options and that just says high def low def i'll do low def maybe that'll that might work seem to be the only yeah you've been talking fine this entire time so, oh so, oh geez stuck oh, there it goes i found there it goes it. okay all, All right. right, so I give will, it another try. Uh, yeah, let me because uh, you're coming in good now. So uh, let me just say 141 to one. Let's go ACC nine. And yeah, just restart the ACC. But go ahead. Okay. So Pitt is a team that you know coming into the season expectations weren't huge. We had them actually as a, a top 25 team, but we talked in that you know, preseason preview, uh, conference preview series about how Pitt is a really a difficult team 
trust. They always tend to, you know, win some games that you wouldn't expect, but they also uh, can lose a few that just really make you scratch your heads. And, and you know, the early season loss to Western Michigan uh, was one of those and kind of set us up thinking maybe, you know, this was just going to be the same old pit team, but they have turned it around from that point, won 10 games, you know, been uh, arguably the best team in the ACC and are, I think, a, a uh, rightly favored team to, to beat Wake Forest in, in the conference championship game. You know, the offense has carried uh, surprisingly because Pitt has been, you know, such a defensive force, especially in the defensive line in recent years, but the offense has, has been, you know, the major talking point this year. Quarterback Penny, Kenny Pickett has played at times like a Heisman Trophy contender. He's probably going to come up a little bit short of that, but Jordan Addison has been one of the best and most productive receivers in college football, and, and they've actually got a pretty deep group of running backs, even though they only rank 70, uh, 72nd in our rushing offensive team performance and, and fifth in our passing offensive team performance. They still can – you know, run the football or, or at least have some talented guys they can hand off to can make a play here or there. The defense has, has been solid. It's not, you know, a top 10 unit like they were a couple of years ago, but they are, you know, top 15 and have done a really good job, you know, keeping opponents, uh, slowing opponents down in the run game. They actually rank seventh in rushing defensive team performance, 15th in overall defensive team performance. They major you know vulnerability and it's going to be you know it's going to come into play this week against wake forest uh they actually rank 68th against the pass so you know this should be probably a, a really high scoring game I, I definitely agree with you scott you know wake forest has a similarly built offense uh they can run the ball christian beale smith has had uh some moments they've got other guys who've jumped in and, and given them uh, a boost when needed guys Chris Turner, Justin Ellison, uh, excuse me, Justice Ellison. But they've got some of the better receivers in the ACC, certainly. A.T. Perry has had a huge, huge year uh, stepping in for an injured Donovan Green. They haven't missed a beat. A.T. Perry stepped into that role. And then Ja'Cory Roberson, you know, is, is uh, been really, really productive throughout his entire career at Wake Forest. Had a solid year this season, but isn't, you know, the go-to guy and hasn't had to be. And that's been to the benefit of, of Sam Hartman. Wake Forest, as a passing offense, they rank third in our offensive team performance. They rank 18th overall offensively, 61st uh, in our rushing offensive team performance. So in a lot of ways, I mean, these two offenses, at least statistically speaking, are you know mirror images of each other. Wake Forest is explosive, attacks, down the field, they rank fourth in points per drive, 17th in yards per pass attempt, eight, or excuse me, 11th in EPA per play. Pitt doesn't, you know, attack downfield as much. They're a little bit uh, shorter in, uh, you know, crossing routes, things like that. But they still rank 21st in yards per pass attempt, solid all, all across the board, you know, between 15th and 25th in every offensive category in those five important stats that we always point to Pitt does have a defensive advantage. And I, and I do think that the Pitt defense will give the Wake Forest offense a little bit more trouble than the Wake Forest defense will the Pitt offense. 
you know, we've seen we've seen Wake Forest exposed defensively at times. They rank 99th in defensive team performance overall, 117th rushing. And of course, that's not you know the strength of the pit offense, but they're still vulnerable. You know, passing defense as well. They rank 55th in, in passing defensive team performance. Wake Forest has been, you know, a solid team. They've they've won 10 games just like Pitt. Uh, they have been a top 25 team a lot of the year, but our power rankings have always been just a little bit lower than the pollsters and, and even the college football playoff committee. Wake Forest is actually only 38th in our power rankings. A lot of that is talent profile. They rank 40th in roster strength overall. The offense is, you know, has been solid, but they still only rank 37th in offensive roster strength, despite, you know, a, a trio of players that they really rely on 90 plus in our player ratings. The offensive line's played, you know, 30th in our offensive line performance ratings, but doesn't have that, you know, elite future first round NFL pick type guy. Don't have a whole lot of highly rated offensive linemen, according to uh, our calculations. Zach Tom at 87 is the highest. Pitt's in a similar boat. Their highest rated offensive lineman is actually a first-year transfer, Marcus Minor, at 90. And they, you know, 37th in offensive line team performance there as well. But each of the guys that they really lean on are just a, a tick better. Kenny Pickett is knocking on the door of a one. Rating. He's a 99.4 right now. Jordan Addison, 98.5. Even though, you know, Roberson and Perry are in the 90s, they're not basically 100. Even though Sam Hartman's mid-90s, he's not a 100-rated player. So there's just a slight edge at those positions that are Wake Forest's best positions. Pitt's even just a little bit better. And then you throw in the fact that the defenses, Pitt just has a huge, huge edge. I mean, they're, statistically speaking, they can be attacked 94th in yards per pass attempt allowed. We're not used to seeing that, at, you know, out of a pit defense and wake Forest can, you know, certainly put up some uh, big chunks of yardage through the air again against this pit defense. But if you look at EPA per play, pits a top 20 unit points per drive. They've done a good job keeping opponents off the scoreboard. They rank 29th. There. They're top 50 in success rate, top 50 in yards per play allowed against FBS opponents. So, you know, Pitt is uh, very, these two teams are very evenly matched. Pitt, a lot of their strengths are the same as Wake Forest strengths on offense. I just trust the Pitt defense a little bit more. Seems strange to think, you know, I trust Pitt a little bit more. But Pitt's a top 10 team in our power rankings. It's been a while since they've lost a game that they were supposed to win you know yeah they were upset against Miami that doesn't look so bad the way Miami's been playing the last couple of months but you know this pit team has taken care of business more often than not the expectations have have you know gone up and up throughout the course of the year it could be time for a letdown but I think Pitt is is just a bit better than Wake Forest Wake Forest has certainly proven a lot of people wrong myself included this year our power ranking our, our projections uh, we're not very high on Wake Forest. I mean, we had them, you know, second half of the ACC, low end of their division. So, you know, for them to to put up ten wins, they've all proven us wrong. But I, I just think, especially the way our numbers, you know, treat things, 
that Pitt has a big, big advantage on defense, and their offense is just just a tiny bit better as well. So we have Pitt to to win and to cover uh, in this one. We're a little low, I think, on the final score. We're we're definitely on the under here. Uh, 36-29 is our final score projection. Think the Pitt should be a touchdown favorite. 42-35, 45-38, something like that's probably uh, more likely to happen. But I do think that Pitt uh, should win this game, and I, I do think that the uh, point spread, you know, the final score should be closer to a touchdown than a field goal. Xavier, what do you think of this game? Do you think that uh, Pitt wins this one going away? Do you think Wake Forest has a shot? Um, I mean, regardless, it should be high scoring, as Nick said. So what do you think? Yeah, I think it's going to be ridiculously high scoring. I think neither defense is really going to have an opportunity to to to, to slow down either offense, honestly. And to be honest with you, you know, this is a huge game for both teams, uh, for both schools. Uh, the more the, the last team in this game to win a conference championship was Pitt, and it was back in 2010. So this will be the first time that either team has had an opportunity to win a championship in the conference in, in this decade. And so I, I think that when you look at it, you know, I, I like I, I trust Kenny Pickett a little bit more than I trust Sam Hartman, and that's where I'm going to lean on the, on Pitt, right? And I think that's where the confidence in Pitt comes is that little bit more, you know, that that, that little bit of extra oomph uh, uh, when it comes to them being more senior laden than when I look at uh, a Wake Forest team that has shown an ability, especially down the stretch, to kind of you know to 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 give up leads, to not put you know their foot on somebody's neck and finish the game, right? And if you look at even you know their last four games, they're two and two. Right, they get blown out by Clemson. They they let one slip away against UNC. They put up a perfect, uh, uh, an impressive win, excuse me, versus NC State. But but that game was also at home. The two losses were both on the road. And so I, I think that I'm a little bit more comfortable with Pitt. As yes, to Nick's credit, Pitt has been a team that's been, that's giving you a letdown every now and then. Uh, but they haven't given us a letdown, you know, since October. Right? They they've right the ship a little bit since their loss to Miami. You know, they've been able to beat Duke, they beat UNC, they beat Virginia, and that's what they handled business against Syracuse. And what a lot of people thought was possibly a trap game. You know, we talked about it, I think, on, on here, you know, or we alluded to it that Syracuse going to Syracuse can be a trap game for a lot of teams looking to, you know, take that next step or possibly get to the playoffs or possibly get to the ACC championship game. So, you know, wins like that for me over the last month have really allowed me to gain a little bit more confidence back into this pit team. You know, uh, and in both cases, you know, this could have been a game if they had to handle business versus some lesser competition. We could be talking about this game as a possible, you know, play-in game for the college football playoff if, you know, some things had to win a little bit differently down the stretch for both teams. Uh, but like I said, I, I like Pitt this game because I think when I, when I look at the quarterback position, which I think is going to be the most important position on the field, especially when we're talking about both offenses being so pass-heavy, right? Wake Forest can run the football but they don't necessarily like to. Same thing goes for Pitt. Both teams can run the football, but both teams are much more comfortable letting their quarterback step back and sit back in the pocket and sling the ball around. And, and when you when you look at it that way, I feel more comfortable in the fifth-year senior who's played in massive games before, who's played in you know every game from here to Timbuktu in the ACC, than the guy who has – Taking a step back in the last month, right? You look at what you look at Sam Hartman's numbers, and even though they've been two and two over the last, you know, in, in the month of November, 
he hasn't been as impressive, right? This is a guy who's thrown a pick or more in every game in November uh, this year. He threw three picks in probably their most impressive win over NC State, you know, three touchdowns and three interceptions, right? So for me, on the flip side, you look at Kenny Pickett and you look at a guy who has been, by all intents and purposes, had his best season in college football this far. Thus far, you know, and then, you know, good for him having his last year at Pitt. But this is a guy who has, you know, made himself maybe even a, a day two draft pick. And I feel a little bit more comf- comfortable with him who's thrown 40 touchdowns and seven interceptions this year versus a guy who's thrown seven interceptions in the month of November alone. So I, I'm going to go with Pittsburgh. I'm going to go with, with with Kenny Pickett and gang. And also to 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 Kenny Pickett's credit, you know, he he's been able to do this and you know, him and Jordan Addison are on, you know, a telepathic wavelength at this point. Uh, they, they, those two are not just good. They have been great this year. And, and I, and I'm concerned to see what Wake Forest is able to do. The other element to Kenny Pickett's game that I think that they're going to try to exploit on Saturday is his ability to run, right? Sam Hartman, uh, or Sam Howell, excuse me, had a really good game against Wake Forest running the football. And that's a little bit concerning when you look at the fact that you're looking at, you know, a guy that I liken to a fullback uh, playing the quarterback position in the preseason episode when you look at Kenny Pickett and what he's able to do on the ground and the physicality in which he runs with. So I'm going to pick Pittsburgh in this game. Uh, and, yeah, I-, I think Pittsburgh wins their first conference title since 2010, and I think it's a great sending off for Kenny Pickett, a guy who's, you know, in his fifth year at Pitt, came back, you know, to, to make his draft stock higher and has done that and could possibly walk away with an ACC championship to boot. All right, last game up here is the SEC championship, Georgia versus Bama. Uh, UGA is a six-and-a-half point favorite in Atlanta here. 49-and-a-half is the over. And uh, I don't know if this will knock either team out of the playoff a loss here. It could knock Bama out. I don't think it will knock Georgia out. But this is an enormous game, Nick, and this is going to set the tone for the playoff moving forward. So how do we see it playing out here? Well, I will say first, I mean, you mentioned playoff hopes. Uh, I am of the belief that if Alabama loses this game, especially if Michigan wins, Cincinnati wins, and or Oklahoma State wins, that Alabama should not go to the playoff. Yes, they're number two in our power rankings, uh, have been, you know, basically all year, except for the first few weeks when they were number one. Uh, They are probably one of the best four teams in college football, regardless of how this game plays out. But yeah, I'm, I'm, of the opinion that we should have the four most deserving teams, not necessarily the four best teams and, and, you know, otherwise why even play the game? So that's maybe a conversation for, for next week, I guess. But uh, I think if Alabama loses, yeah, they, they should not uh, go to the playoff, especially if uh, Michigan or Oklahoma state or, or Cincinnati are there, but, you know, on, on that, you know, with that in mind, our numbers think Alabama is the second best team in college football and the second best team in college football absolutely can beat the best team in college football, which has been Georgia. Uh, Alabama still ranks number one in roster strength, number one in defensive roster strength. Yeah. That Georgia defense has been absolutely incredible, has played like arguably the best defense of the current era of this century. And, you know, the way that we calculate things, 
Alabama still has the best roster in the country. They were number one in roster strength. They actually rank number one in defensive roster strength. So even that Georgia defense, which has been historically great statistically and, and certainly has played like the best defense in the country uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of, a lot of, you know, metrics show that Georgia is the best defense of the current era of the last century or, or excuse me, the current century. But Alabama, at least the way we calculate things is just as talented, if not even slightly more talented than that elite, you know, all timer of a Georgia defense. You look at the quarterback position. Bryce Young is a Heisman contender, you know, going to be a finalist, uh, might actually even win it. I, I do believe he's the current betting favorite. He's a 100-rated player in our individual player rating. I know that Stetson Bennett has been solid for Georgia. He has been, you know, much better than I would have expected, much better than most Georgia fans would have expected. That Georgia offense is actually playing pretty well. And in passing, you know, passing team performance, they're number four in the country. That would, you know, probably shock any of us uh, at the beginning of the season to say that Georgia's have a top five passing offense. Of course, we're not just talking about raw, you know, passing yardage numbers, but but efficiency metrics and things like that. And Stetson Bennett has put Georgia in a position uh, to be successful with a banged up receiving core. You know, and they haven't had to, to to lean on the running game. Georgia actually only ranks 34th in rushing team performance. But Bennett's been great. That receiving core is getting healthier. We saw George Pickens for the first time last week against Georgia Tech. Will he be, you know, a, a, a factor this week against Alabama? Maybe. You know, Brock Bowers has been one of the best tight ends in college football, one of the best true freshmen of any, uh, uh, you know, position as far as his impact statistically in, in college football. And then, you know, Kyrus Jackson sounds like he's going to be back after uh, getting banged up. Lane McConkie has been, uh, you know, productive at times this year. Jermaine Burton certainly has had his moments. So it, it seems like that, you know, the Georgia offense has been good enough and is capable enough that even though Alabama is – as talented as it is and has played pretty well defensively has its own Heisman candidate should be in Will Anderson who has been the most disruptive defensive player in college football. I mean, I've talked a lot about Aiden Hutchinson earlier at Michigan, but Will Anderson, in my opinion, has been even more impactful this year and should be, uh, you know, considered a, among the best defensive players in any Heisman conversation. But, Alabama's played top five defense, their fifth in defensive team performance, number two against the run. So it seems like they're probably going to be able to take the running game away uh, from Georgia and make Stetson Bennett beat them. Is he going to be able to do that? Maybe. He's, he's proven, you know, proven me wrong, proven a lot of people wrong all year. Uh, but that's going to be the matchup, you know, certainly to watch. And then it's going to be can Bryce Young beat that Georgia defense? Georgia, you know, they they played some difficult opponents, but looking back at, at the schedule, you know, starting at the very beginning, Clemson's not what we expected them to be. Uh, you know, Arkansas and Auburn, probably maybe the the two other uh, better teams. Auburn is a, a 500 team. Arkansas won eight games. You know, is that uh, super impressive? Were those offenses that we would expect to give? this Georgia defense, a whole lot of trouble. Now they played really well against 
Tennessee, who's got an explosive offense. They played really well against Florida, who, despite their issues, you know, have have uh, uh, certainly had some success in the past. But this Alabama team is is in a different tier offensively compared to anything that Georgia has played. So while I do think that Georgia absolutely has been the best you know defense in the country, and statistically it's it's on a historic pace. This is going to be a little bit of a different challenge, and, and I won't say for sure that Alabama is going to be able, you know, to put up a bunch of yards, a bunch of points, and and uh, you know make this this Georgia defense look like a different unit than it's been all season. But I do think that you know they are certainly capable. Jameson Williams has just a, a ton of speed; has been incredibly explosive. Alabama last week completely missed him in the lineup when he uh, was ejected for targeting and, and, you know, covering a punt. John Mechie's been great this year. Alabama's probably not going to be able to run the ball, though. Not only is Brian Anderson, or excuse me, Brian Robinson, banged up, sounds like might not play, which would put them down to one scholarship running back. That offensive line has been a little bit of an issue. I mean, we talked about it, uh, you know, in our Iron Iron Bowl preview last week. But this Alabama offensive line, which we're used to seeing maybe the best line in college football, certainly a top five, they're playing outside the top 30 in our performance numbers. Uh, they were exposed. You know, the, the pass rush uh, was an issue for this Alabama offensive line, even though Evan Neal might be one of the better uh, offensive line men in the country. The other four, you know, it, there's certainly some holes up front or at least some areas that other, you know, defenses have been able to expose. And Auburn did a really good job of it last week. So you would have to assume that the Georgia defense is, is going to be, uh, you know, able to control the line of scrimmage. You know, you certainly would think. Will Bryce Young be able to get rid of the ball quickly? Will he be able to, you know, go down the field with Mechie or Williams? Will he be able to check down to his tight ends? Will he be able to get a running back involved out of the backfield? You know, those are all, all questions we'll wait to see. Our numbers have been high on Alabama all year, and they've been a team that's been a little bit tricky to figure out because at sometimes they've looked like the dominant Alabama team that we expect, but at times, you know, the Arkansas game recently, the Florida game much longer ago, LSU in between, they've looked vulnerable, they've looked beatable, and of course they lost to Texas A&M. They're talented enough, they're good enough still when they play, you know, at a very high level, I think to beat Georgia, I think they certainly could. I think if they do, both are headed to the playoff. Uh, but our numbers do favor Georgia, just not quite as much as the odds makers in the market. We don't have a good track record, honestly, in recent SEC championship games. Uh, we did have Florida to cover last year, but we were, you know, a good bit off on the market. Our numbers never quite caught up to LSU two years ago. So I'm a little nervous that maybe Georgia has kind of moved into that territory where they have been clearly the number one team in the country. Everybody knows that. But is is the gap between number one and number two big enough? And our numbers sometimes have had a, a difficult time, you know, find, being able to, to set that team that far apart. So we do have Georgia winning, but we do have Alabama covering. 28-24 is our projection. That seems about right. Uh, but this is, you know, this is a game that could go in in you know one of three ways. And and I wouldn't be, I'm not going to be surprised 
whatever happens. Uh, if Georgia wins by two touchdowns, that won't be a shock. If it's a you know field goal game, that won't be a shock. If Alabama wins this game, you know they've they've won one. They haven't been underdogs much at all. But the last time that they were an underdog was against Georgia in an SEC championship game, if memory serves. And Alabama won that game pretty easily. So this isn't the same Alabama team as you know last year's national championship uh, team, other national champions that they've had. But I think they're good enough and talented enough that it, it shouldn't surprise anybody. If they win this game, it shouldn't really surprise anybody if they win the national championship. Our numbers have Georgia favored to win. We do think it'll be closer than uh, what the odds makers and, and the market currently have it. I don't have a ton of confidence one way or the other, but I think I'm glad that we're on Alabama because I do think that this is a game that they could win outright. Xavier, what do you think of the SEC title game? Do you think that uh, Bama is going to you know, show up and take down Georgia and – um, you know, win the SEC title and definitely make the playoff? Or do you think Georgia continues this uh, pace that they're on and uh, this is kind of a walkaway game for them? Or do you think it's like a really tight down to the wire and you have no idea who's going to win it? Yeah, I, I really think this comes down to two very important players for, for both teams. And I, and I think this comes down to the front four for Georgia and it comes down to Bryce Young's legs. And, and I say this because I feel like if Georgia can rush four and drop seven consistently, then this game is going to be ugly. Like, just call it what it is, right? We look at last week's game. If if Alabama's O-line plays anywhere near what they did last week against Auburn, this game will be a blowout in Georgia's favor. Auburn got pressure on, on Bryce Young consistently with just four. And more importantly, did they own, here's the thing, though. They didn't get many sacks. That's where the difference in Georgia and Auburn is going to be. You can't just uh, you know, allow N'Kobe Dean or Jordan Davis or Devontae Wyatt or Jalen Carter to get through scot-free. They're going to make the play in the backfield unless Bryce Young is able to use his legs. This Georgia defense has very few deficiencies, but if one deficiency does exist, it's that secondary hasn't necessarily been tested. Right, Keely Ringo, Darian Kendrick, Lewis Seen and company, Christopher Smith hasn't really been tested outside of really the Tennessee game, right? And when you when you look at it in that respect, what would really hurt Georgia this week is if Bryce Young is able to extend plays, forcing that secondary to to cover longer than they've been accustomed to all year. I'll take you back to 2019 when Georgia played LSU. Georgia got to Joe Burrow a lot. However, Joe Burrow wasn't on the ground a lot. He was able to make maneuver, get out the pocket, make plays down the field, and ultimately a secondary that, once again, that year hadn't been tested a lot because that front four slash, you know, when they would blitz was so successful in that game in particular, Georgia's secondary gave up a ton of big plays. And I think that that would only be the concern here if you're a Georgia fan is, is this secondary up to, you know, play you know, four quarters of football with Bryce Young throwing the ball 45 times. Because that's indic- that, that's what I think is going to take Alabama to win this ball game. because like Nick alluded to, they have not been able to run the football all year. And I don't think that changes this week. And I don't think Saban 
even is going to attempt to do so. I think he obviously may look at the, you know, may look at just keeping them, you know, honest as is a term that we always like to use is making sure the defense stays honest. But you saw it in last week's game. Bryce Young threw the ball 51 times. If that tells you anything about how Nick Saban and how that coaching staff feels about their ability to run the football, then I think that that's exactly what they're going to come in here and try to do this weekend, right? They're going to attempt to pass the football around the yard, maybe run the football on running downs, you know, third and twos, you know, fourth and ones, you know, second and five, second and sevens, things like that. But ultimately it's going to come down to whether or not Bryce Young can be accurate with his arm and also extend plays with his legs to keep this Alabama offense in it. On the flip side, when you look at Georgia's offense, Stetson Bennett and, and what people, and I went back and watched his film against Alabama last year, because obviously he played Alabama last year in Tuscaloosa. In the first half of that game, which was when Stetson Bennett looked his best, he was able to, they gave him pretty simple reads, right? And we were able to run the ball pretty well at those junctures of the game, it really all changed with back-to-back picks to end the half and to start the second half for Georgia in that ball game once Alabama kind of took over. So for Stetson in this game, he's going to make he, – navigating the offense. We don't need a big plays. This isn't the Alabama offense of last year with Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. It's not going to be a boat race. You can – you know, they, they can play this game kind of to the speed of which they played the Florida game, which is what I fully expect. Right, you're gonna see a lot of attention to the back to the backs. You're gonna see James Cook out the backfield. You're gonna see Kenny McIntosh out the backfield, and Zamir White up the middle when when, when necessary. But it's gonna be on Stetson Bennett to be the game manager he has been all season. But once again, like I said with Bryce Young, using his legs because that would be what makes this you know what would allow Georgia to really run away with this ball game is if he's able to get out the pocket and force guys like Will Anderson and company to rethink just rushing downfield because Stetson Bennett has the ability to run, right? And that's what has separated himself, you know, this year when when fans and, and even analysts have talked about his lack of arm talent, his ability to extend plays and make good decisions on the run has been what has really made him, you know, a, a guy that, you know, you can trust coming into a game like this. Ultimately, I think Georgia wins because that front four is probably the best front four we've seen in, in football over the last six, seven years. And, and I think Alabama's offensive line is not ready for a game like this uh, and ready for a, a, a contest like this where Alabama's offensive line has been pretty pedestrian all year long. It's not just the Auburn game. Nick brought up the LSU game in which they were pretty pedestrian. Uh, the AM game for, for at least a half, they weren't great. You know, and even the Tennessee game for the first half of that game, they weren't outstanding. So I, I think when you look at uh, Alabama's offensive deficiencies, Bryce Young is going to have to be Superman on Saturday for them to win this ballgame. Even when you look at the receiving court, Jamison Williams and Mechie, that's really it when you look at it, right? There's not a, a third or fourth guy like Alabama has typically had in the past. You know, typically maybe it's been a Mechie who was the fourth guy. Maybe it's been an OJ Howard who all of a sudden has a big game in the playoffs. Like they've always had a third or fourth guy. And Slade Bolden is not that guy this year. And, and so even from a coverage perspective of Georgia, you, Georgia, you're almost saying to yourself, Okay, cool. We have to guard Jamison Williams and guard Mechie. And if Slade Bolden wants to have his best game of his career, then I guess you know we'll, we'll just have we'll just have to eat that one. But but they don't have four, three, and four guys that terrify you like they've had in the past with Rugs and and you know uh, and Amari Cooper and company. And I think that's also what's been, been been hampering them so much is their inability to run the football 
and the lack of dynamicism that they have on the outside has allowed pretty much every team to keep them in a box. And, and that's been, and I think that's what Georgia is able to do on Saturday. And I think that's why Georgia wins the game pretty handedly. My score line for this game is going to be somewhere in the range of 34 to, to 17, 34, 20. I, I think, you know, maybe Alabama gets some, is going to be able to score, but I don't think they're going to be able to score at nearly the clip they need to uh, against this Georgia defense, which has been, you know, outstanding all year and comes in pretty healthy playing Charleston Southern and Georgia Tech over the last two weeks. Yeah, they really challenged themselves the last two weeks there. So, you know, I mean, uh, look, but it's nice to come in healthy for sure. But uh, what, uh, I mean, only 11 games on the weekend here, Nick. So do we have, uh, I, you said UTSA is our only wrong team favorite. How about all three agrees? Yeah, UTSA is also an all three agree. We have them with a, a pretty big talent edge, somewhat surprisingly. Uh, and the SAS model likes UTSA as well well and uh oregon plus three is an all three for us baylor plus five and a half which i don't feel as good about uh usc plus four it's been difficult to trust usc but they played pretty well last week against byu and and you know covered in an all three agree for us and then alabama i mean we just don't have alabama as uh in in the three models (laughs) basically uh pretty pretty impossible to be uh, you know, six and a half point underdogs in, in any of them. And we actually do give Alabama a slight talent edge, as I mentioned, uh, in the stats model, because of course, the last, you know, three and five years, uh, periods, uh, Alabama's been the best in college football. So, uh, not a surprise that they would be an outright favorite in that one either. So, uh, you know, all three agree. We've said it several weeks in a row now. Uh, fading those has been profitable. They've been on a just horrific uh run the the last two months basically um but you know maybe maybe late uh what is it late better than never um and so we've got five this week and and you know four of them i actually feel okay about so uh hopefully they'll they'll work out for us all right well that will wrap it up for conference championship weekend we'll be back next week and uh, stick with us. Remember, you can find us all on the Twitter machine at Bogman Sports for myself, at CFB Winning Edge for Nick, at Xavier underscore Tris, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, Visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.